Welcome to Weekly Yaiba Kimetsu, the special bonus podcast brought to you by the folks at Japanimation Station. I'm Sean Chapman. I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again after a long absence uh, for the the least weekly podcast ever, Weekly Yaiba Kimetsu, um, because the new season of Kimetsu Yaiba, the hit anime show from Japan, also known as Demon Slayer, is now out and finished. Season three is the Swordsmith Village arc. We have watched it, and now we are here to talk about it. I'm so fucking excited. This is this is so good. I binged this. I started, we record these on Sundays. I started Wednesday night thinking, I can parcel these out until Saturday night. And instead I watched it in three sittings over two days and was done Thursday night. Uh, and I've just been thinking about it ever since and listening to the kick-ass opening song and just this, this rocks. What about you, Sean? How fast did you binge this? Um, yeah, I, I intentionally had to slow down because um, <laughs> I... I started rewatching the Entertainment District arc because I haven't watched that since the, when we talked about it for the podcast when it finished. Um, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll start at the beginning of this week. I'll start watching that. And then that's like, you know, 24-ish episodes of anime. You know, there's like three or four episodes in there that are like 50 episodes or 50 minutes long. So I don't know. It's hard to break down how many episodes that actually is in terms of viewing time. Um, but I was like, that's enough. That'll like mean I'll easily finish at the end of the week. And then I watched the Entertainment District arc almost entirely in one day. Like I had to <laughs> physically stop myself to go to sleep because like if I, I can't keep watching, um, I think I stopped with like three episodes left um, after just one sitting on that. Um, and then I took a that I finished that took a couple of day break. And then, yeah, I think I watched the Swordsmith Village arc in two days. Um, basically the first half one day, the second half the next. Yeah. All right. Everybody knows we are in the tank for Kimetsu no Yaiba. We love this story. We have read the whole manga. We've talked about all of the anime stuff. One note right away, by the way, um, we have read the whole manga. We will not spoil anything past Swordsmith Village until maybe the end. If we're talking about like the future of the show, then maybe you and I will do that, but we'll let people mm -hmm. know. So if you're an anime only viewer, don't worry. We're not going to like tell you what happens to all the characters or anything. Uh, but yeah, just backing up. We love this show. Clearly, we watched this fast. I think season three is as good as anything else in the show. What about you? Yeah, I think it's phenomenal. I would probably put it a little bit below the Entertainment District arc. Like, I think there's a section in the middle of this season where I think they, it's a little bit hard for them to deal with the duel, the two fights going on simultaneously, yes. 
where the manga is able to chunk that up because it's smaller chapters. It's like one of the only places where I think the manga has done something better than the anime specifically is that the manga could pace that out a little bit easier. Um, but once you get to basically, I think it's episode eight or nine, the Muichiro Mu episode, the one that like it then just like buckles down and says, this is going to be a Muichiro episode. That point on, it is like as good as anything in the series has been. And then the opening section, the first couple of episodes are also, you know, they're much more like comedy focused and much more kind of character stuff before they get into the big fights. But those episodes are as good as those kinds of episodes have ever been for the show. So in general, it's extremely high quality. It is like, I'd probably put it like a notch below on Mugen Train and Entertainment District Arc to me. I would agree with that. But I think like, I do think that's an inherited thing from the manga where I think mm -hmm. there are things, I think in the manga, I would put Entertainment District Arc and Swordsmith Village on a roughly even plane. Yes. I think there are things in the manga though, that when you translate them to anime, almost inevitably, don't work as well as Entertainment District Arc. One of those being, I think the demons that they are fighting in this season are not as interesting in animation with voices as Daki and uh, Gutaro were in yes. season two. You do not have Miyuki Sawashiro as your big bad this year. That is a tough shoe to fill, right? Uh, and I do think like that didn't bother me in the manga. Didn't really miss a beat with that. I think in, in the anime, when you have time and you have voices and you and all of that, I just did notice, okay, they have done... The, the main demons of the last two arcs, Mugen Train and Entertainment District, are more interesting than the two demons here. Uh, and then I do think there's exactly what you're talking about, the divide between the two fights, which the Entertainment District arc is... Re it has a little bit of, like, geographic spacing, but mostly it's just one big fight. This one is just a tougher one, and I agree. I think if they had been able to split it into, like... If we, if we didn't go back and check in with Muichiro once he was in the big bubble until we were ready to get him out of the bubble, I think it would have been a cleaner break in the middle mm -hmm. there. But yeah, generally though, I think Ufo Table's adaptation is up to snuff. And when I got to the end, like I think the finale of this season is one of the clearest examples ever of Ufo Table elevating stuff from the manga. Mm -hmm. And I think it that can, tied with some little adaptation choices they make throughout... I think really brought out a lot of the thematic heft of this arc for me. Yes. And overall, I think it's, you know, we are grading, this is on a curve. If we're saying it's a notch yes. below the Entertainment District arc, I think you and I called the Entertainment District arc the most impressively produced season of anime we'd ever seen. So, you know. Yeah, I would say, like, having rewatched it, like, it is one of the best seasons of TV anime ever. Like, it yes. is, like, it is insane yes. how fucking good the Entertainment District arc is. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like, it's it's such a high bar to clear and it, and inevitably the nature of the swordsmith village arc is that it doesn't have the same propulsive quality as the entertainment district arc um even if it is propulsive like it's still a show that you like you know you want to kind of gobble up because it's so much fun to watch but the entertainment district or like i don't think i would have been able to watch the swordsmith village arc in just one sit through because of that kind of middle section that gets a bit slow um whereas the entertainment district arc you have to fucking fight yourself to walk yes. away from that thing it's like so hard to to stop watching um but that i think just like goes to the nature of this arc in terms of its source material is it is a little bit slower it's it's spending more time setting up other characters um and it's and it's spending time specifically to set up stuff that is going to pay off in the giant final arc and that's like the, one of the benefits of having read the manga is i know some of the things that they're doing here maybe feel like a little bit un undercooked or something like some of the stuff with conrigi is not totally done 
Um, Genya's character is like not finished or whatever. There's still more stuff to do with him. There's a lot of stuff with the larger world building that's being set up here. So there's a lot more specific setup in this arc in a way that the Entertainment District arc and Mugen Train are much more self-contained. They are stories that like, yeah, there are things that will get picked up in later stories, but, you know, um, Tengen, the main character, the main Hashira in the Entertainment District arc, he comes back, but he's not a major player in the final arc, really, um, in a way that, like, Kanroji and, and Muichiro both are going to be, Ginya is going to be. Um, and so that's one of the things about Swordsmith Village that I think also makes it a little bit harder to be at that same level as Mugen Train and uh, Entertainment District is because it's not really meant to stand on its own totally in the way that those arcs are. Well, yeah, it's not quite a fair comparison because the Entertainment District arc is the culmination of the entire first half of Kimetsu no Yaiba. It is the point where they finally defeat an upper-ranked demon, which is the thing that has been, like, dogging them this whole path. And it is, as we've talked about before, it and Mugen Train are really kind of one big arc about Mm -hmm. Tanjiro working with, like, having this kind of mentor figure, losing them, losing a battle, finding a new mentor figure, and then winning. But also, Entertainment District arc, everybody in that season, other than, like, Tengen Uzui, we had basically known before. It is Tanjiro, and it is Nezuko, and it is Zenitsu, and it is Inosuke. And then you have the villains, and you have Tengen Uzui, and his, and his wives, as he is going yes. to tell us. He is a man with multiple wives. Um, but but that is a big sort of payoff. You've got all your favorite characters. It ends with this big victory. Swordsmith Village is kind of a reset. The only returning characters are Tanjiro and Nezuko. And mm-hmm. everybody else you see on screen in Swordsmith Village is someone who's either entirely new, or we've only seen very briefly. Genya, I think, had two scenes before this. Yes. You know, we only would have seen Muichiro and Kanroji in the basic context of, like, the Hashira meeting, or when everybody learns that Rengoku died, and stuff like that. So this is very much... Uh, an arc that is introducing us to a crap ton of new characters. It doesn't have a bunch of our favorite characters from the rest of the story. And as you say, it is, I think, one, if you haven't read the rest of the manga, you might not see just how thematically important this arc is in setting up the rest of the story. But it's just, trust us, it's very important thematically. And then all of these characters do return. If they're alive at the end of Swordsmith Village, they have a lot left to do. Nobody's story is finished. Um, and so, yeah, I think within all of the, like keeping all that in mind, I actually think it's slightly miraculous. This season of anime is as good as it is on its own, because I think it could fall flatter with all of those things. But to me, it was like, okay, maybe it's a notch below entertainment district arc, but I don't know how it kind of couldn't be. And Mm -hmm. it's still fantastic. Yeah, no, it's absolutely phenomenal. And it does do the thing that you were kind of talking about a little bit earlier, that Yufa Table has done such an incredible job at, at adapting this series, which is finding the kind of core essential story and ideas and themes at play in Gotoge Sensei's manga, and really bringing that to the forefront and shaping that in the with such a clarity in their adaptation. Um, and that's where you have the final episode, which is a special, like, 50-minute-long episode, um... Which is funny because it doesn't even really have to be like it's got such a clear <laughs> break <laughs> where yes. you could, could have been two episodes, but you know, you for table just listens. Yeah, fuck you. Uh, like normal anime scheduling, uh, we we do what we want, um, and you know, it's fun to be able to just watch a big, big, crazy episode. Um, but that sort of final episode, how they handle all the handle all the material at the end of the story, and the contrast there between all the characters and the different flashbacks and stuff. It just has such a sort of insight into, fundamentally, I think, 
what Kimetsu no Yaiba is about and then what this story is about um, and kind of zooming it out to this like big picture idea of like selfishness versus selflessness, sacrifice, um, like the nature of what it is to be like a quote unquote prodigy or genius, which is a major theme in the Swordsmith Village versus like, you know, like individual genius type effort of like one remarkable person versus like a communal effort, which is much more what Kimetsu no Yaiba is about. And all those different contrasts that are all there in the manga and are very well done in the manga, I think are heightened even more with the way that Yuva Table is able to bring that stuff to the forefront. They're able to package it in these like kind of bigger chunks with episodes and seasons of anime that really zoom in on those key fundamental ideas. And so that element which is exactly how I would describe Mugen Train. It's exactly how I would describe um, the Entertainment District arc. That is absolutely at play here with the Swordsmith Village. Like, they find the essential ideas and the core essence of the story being told in the manga, and they make it even stronger and even more clear um, and, and more kind of powerful with how they adapt it into animation. And that's still the thing that I think is most impressive about Kimetsu no Yaiba as an anime that continues to make it, like, the best one of these kinds of shows in terms of shonen battle stuff adapting a manga I've ever seen. Absolutely. You know, there were just, I will say, when I read the manga, several of the things I put a pin in as being most excited to see in the anime were in this arc. I think the number one thing I was most excited to see UFO Table tackle, not even because it's a big spectacle, but because of the heft of it, is the chapter, The Mu and Muichiro. And I just knew going into this season there was going to be an episode called The Mu and Muichiro, and it would be one of the best episodes of the series, and it is one of the best episodes of the series. And Swordsmith Village has another couple of moments. The the ending with Nezuko, obviously. Uh, Tanjiro does this big, crazy dragon slash in the middle that is this big two-page spread in the manga. And it was just over and over again when we reached those moments this season. It was like, ah, uh, yep, yeah, UFO Table did it. They fucking nailed it. And uh, makes me all the more excited for the next stretch of the series, which has a lot of things I am also have put a pin in as excited for in the anime. Yeah, no, it's, it's just a, a great... Great season of anime, as as always. Yep. So, uh, let's start with the double-length premiere, because, not that we're going to talk about every one of these episodes individually, but I do want to hone in on the premiere, because, A, I saw it in a movie theater, because this premiere, mm-hmm. as UFO Table is wont to do, they plucked out and they put it with the final two episodes of the Entertainment District arc, and those came out as a movie called To the Swordsmith Village that played all around the world and grossed almost $60 million for UFO Table in global territories, which is just... Yeah. Yeah, I, I was shocked to learn that it, that movie has its own Wikipedia page because yes. I like was because I, I was bringing up the Wikipedia page so that I had all the episodes uh, summaries so I knew where the, all the episodes broke down while we talked about it on the podcast and I was like what the fuck is this Wikipedia? Like, where's the episode list? And then I realized, wait, this is talking about the movie. It has its own... I don't think I've ever seen that uh, because they've done that with a bunch of other Kimetsu Yaiba stuff. They did that with all of season one um, where they, in Japan, they showed them as like, they packaged them as movies and stuff as well. Um, but those don't have their own Wikipedia pages. Um, and it, I just found that incredibly amusing that that has its whole own English language page. I just have to imagine with that much money, they must have made back all of their money for this season just on that one theatrical event. And mm-hmm. everything since the airing, advertisements, subscriptions, that's just like pure profit, right? Like it's its an insane moneymaker, um, which is not what we're here to talk about, but it's mind blowing. So anyway, I had seen that premiere in theaters back in March, and then I waited to watch the full season until this week. But even on its own, just as one hour in theaters, that premiere is something else because I think it includes... 
the most impressive CGI showcase we've ever seen from UFO Table, which is the big scene inside the Infinity Castle. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, this has, um, you can you can tell, I think, that they had um, planned it to be a movie-type thing pretty early in production, because yes. that scene, which is like your opening credits, basically, um, for the season, but that scene feels like they knew it was going to be shown in a the movie theater, because, yeah, it is pretty amazing and they, and they just like they lavish in it they really take their time in this very surreal sequence of akaza just in the infinity castle and all the things zooming past in him in this sort of bizarre abstract space um that is incredibly impressive and it also feels like them like sort of figuring out okay for people who don't know from the manga that is where a huge chunk of the giant last arc is all set in different sections within that castle and so it's them being like how the fuck are we going to do that? Like, what are we yes. going to do to try to, like, depict that on screen? Because we've seen the Infinity Castle in a couple of scenes before, um, like, at the end of season one, and it's always been very cool. Um, and this is them, I think, continuing to figure out how do we want to sort of, like, establish and explore and utilize this space? Because it is the most ripe space for UFO table nonsense. Um, it's the, the part that feels the most like you're watching... Um, one of the Kata no Kyokai movies is that whole scene in yes. this um, is because it's is is just sort of like odd and bizarre um, and very surreal and it's and I'm pretty sure that whole scene is scored just by Kajio Yuki because you need her and her weird music to help establish this strange space. Yeah, and that just that whole thing I I so vividly remember sitting in the theater watching it on they had it on their like biggest screen in the theater. And it was just, it's huge. And, like, the scope of it. And, like, there's so many different spaces. And the way all the objects are moving. And, like, you're moving. There really is, like, a scale to it that is, like, mind-numbing. It is wild. And I think that that whole scene, it's basically the first half of the double-length episode is the entire big meeting of the upper-ranked demons. And it's accomplishing several different things. It is introducing us to this space. And then also introducing us to all the upper-ranked demons two of whom will be our villains for this season. The other three we'll get to know in the future. Um, getting to see all the big-name actors they've cast as these different characters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's and also doing more with Muzan Kibutsuji himself uh, and all of that. But it is just like, it's such a cool kind of promise of things to come. And, you know, this is, we'll talk about this later. This is also where I'm like, I wonder if they're just going to do a bunch of movies after this, because this mm-hmm. looks big. Yes, no, it's a it's a great scene. Um, yeah, and all the stuff they do with like um, where Muzan um, grabs uh, the upper fifth's head or whatever. I um, mean, like Muzan is like upside down on the ceiling, and he's just holding the head in a sudden cut um, and all that shit. Yeah, like as Muzan becomes more and more sort of exasperated and angry, and then at the end of the season when he comes sort of ecstatic with what's happened with Nezuko, um, I just like this very sort of intense Muzan, right, where he has been a more kind of reserved character, or more kind of background character um, so far, and you just feel him just getting completely fucking fed up with all this shit. It's like, I have made all of you guys, it's been hundreds of years, and nothing has fucking happened, um, and I'm fucking tired of it. Uh, and I, I really just like uh, his whole characterization, his whole deal here. Yeah, that's uh, and it's Toshihiko Seki is Muzan. Yeah. We know him from Gundam. He was Rao Le Creuset. He was Duo Maxwell. And uh, God, he's so he's so good. The more like range they kind of give him to go, because you're right, he's mostly been in a very kind of calm mode, and now it is just like. This guy is coming apart at the seams a little bit, uh, either out of anger or at the end of the season out of excitement. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and that scene is just them showing off how many voice actors, like this whole season and this whole show is them just voice showing off, look at all the voice actors we can get, because, you know, <laughs> when we get to um, Han Tengu, the upper fourth, and they have a different voice actor for every one of his different forms, and it's all like people who've been protagonists in their own shows, and they get like five lines on this. But you have like, um, one of my favorite one reveals, just because I was curious who was going to play this character, is the upper first um, who is voiced by Okiayu uh, Yotaro, who, if people know Bleach, he's Byakuya in Bleach, which is a very similar kind of performance, because that's also a very kind of um, reserved, very intense, um, and, and seemingly kind of sadistic samurai character. Um, and so he's doing a very similar performance as what he did on Bleach, which is great. Um, of course, that character, you can tell by the way he looks, um, that there is a connection there with the first swordsman that we start getting flashbacks to, who's, of course, voiced by Kazuhiko Inoue, um, everybody's favorite character from Naruto Kakashi. Um, and so having having uh, everyone's favorite, maybe not everyone's favorite character in Bleach, but certainly one of my favorite characters in Bleach, and everyone's favorite character in Naruto, playing those two characters, it's a very good piece of casting, I think, um, that pairs it well. Um, and he's giving a good performance that like I'm excited to see some of future stuff where we'll have scenes, flashbacks with those two characters in the past. Um, where they can be kind of paired off together. Um, and then you've got Miyano Mamoru, of course, is back. Um, we had seen him at the end of the Pleasure District arc as uh, the upper second demon, and he is so fucking good. He's so scene. good. He steals the show in this first episode because he's basically the, the one who is talking the most, and he is kind of needling everybody, and we get the little hint at the end of his weird, like, religious kingdom he's mm -hmm. founded and all of that, and God, he's just having so much fun. It is so amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just like way into this stage of Miyano Mamoru's career where he's not playing protagonist characters as much and he's not playing like kind of high school characters as often anymore. I mean, it's kind of him as like that whole generation of voice actors like Nakamura Yuchi and stuff as well, you know, playing um, the mentor figure in, in uh, Jujutsu Kaisen instead of playing the protagonist and stuff. Um, but with Miyano Mamoru, it just means he's getting some of these really juicy roles um, like Doma here. And yeah, it's so... It's so fucking juicy, um, and he he just like leans into every single syllable in a way that is absolutely wonderful. Um, and then you've got our upper fourth demon, Han Tengu, who's voiced by a lot of different people, but it's um, Furukawa. It's a Piccolo um, is the old man version. She doesn't have a lot until you get to the end of the season, and I think some of the stuff at the end um, is really good when you get a little bit more of him being to really play that character. Um, and then the upper fifth, um, I can't re remember the name of the actor. I'm looking through it. You mean Akaza? It's Akira Ishida is Akaza. Or no, he's upper, upper three, third. sorry. Yeah. Upper fifth um, is... Uh, hot guy. That's Gyutaro, right? Or no, not Gyutaro. Kaigaku? Or is he... No. Um, Gyoko. Gyoko. Uh, yeah. And that's... Um, I couldn't recognize this actor, even though he's got a very distinctive voice. It's Toriyumi Kosuke. Yes. He's like uh, Gaia in Genshin Impact. Um, he was the older... Um, Asimu Asano in Gundam Age in part three when he's aged up and he's got that he's got such a cool very distinctive voice and you cannot tell it's him at all playing no that I character. couldn't place it at all yeah. um it's a really good performance because so it's a very kind of like kabuki style performance is kind of what he's doing with Yoko which makes sense because he's kind of the crazy artist character but yeah like I was very impressed when I looked it up because it's like I've, that's that's an actor I feel like I can usually identify because he's got such a very clear cadence and style to his voice. Um, and it kind of shows off this like, oh, he's not sort of just typecast as the mysterious cool guy. He can do some really different and really good stuff. Yeah. 
But in any case, as you say, it is just a, it is an incredible vocal ensemble. I hadn't even noticed the sheer list of actors they've got doing Han Tengu this season. It's <laughs> hilarious. It's such a flex. It's, it's, <laughs> it's almost stupid. It's almost yeah. stupid how many uh, great actors are playing these little tiny versions of this other character. Yes, but man, what a what a cool thing. And yeah, so this, the first half of the episode, all the Infinity Castle stuff is so disturbing and unsettling and cool. And I think it's very smart that they, this is another one, you, they could have split this in two episodes. The split point is pretty clear. But I think because that first half is so intense, I think it makes sense to put this all in one place. Go back to Tanjiro, have him wake up and have a nice, fun kind of release valve on just mm-hmm. the sheer tension of the first half of the episode. And, and and obviously, it's the same idea, I think, as the premiere of season two of the Entertainment District arc of getting us actually into where Tanjiro is going by the end of the episode. Because if we just cut it off at the middle, we wouldn't even get to Swordsmith Village in the premiere of the Swordsmith Village arc. And so overall, it's just it's a fantastic premiere. It gives us at least a preview of every character in the season even if some of them like Muichiro it's very brief but we do get to see everybody along the way yeah um and it, it has some of I think the strongest comedy Kimetsu Gabe has had so far that whole scene of Tanjiro waking up which is all from the perspective of that the Kakushi guy yes. who's one of like the sort of background figures um who's voiced another like a great actor they've got Eguchi Takia who if you're a fan of Hanai Natsuki's um, Uno or Uno videos. Um, he's yes. one of the three actors along with Uno Kensho, or sorry, Uno Kensho, who does the Uno videos <laughs> um, on Hainan. That's his YouTube channel. Um, Egoshitaki is just like, he's a really good voice actor, but he's a particularly very funny voice actor. Um, and so, and I'm pretty sure he is that, because I remember him playing a very small role in early Kimetsu no Yaiba, and I'm pretty sure it is just that same character, um, because he has the whole line about like, oh, you probably don't remember who I am, but I was that guy who said like, is this Tanjiro guy for real? Back in episode 23 yes. of season one, basically. And he literally almost like breaks the fourth wall. And that whole bit that he has of him sort of like, seeing the world through the eye of like all the insanity of demon slayer through the eyes of this like just random dude in the background who's bringing fucking a cake to to tantra's bedside all that shit i just thought was incredibly funny and him realizing that tantra is awake and has woken up from his like month-long coma um and him just screaming at kind of like what are you doing? Like, you gotta shout. You gotta, like, freak out. Like, haven't you ever, like, done this before? And he just runs into the hallway, just shouts at the top of his lungs. Um, all that is great. But then the ultimate payoff of um, Inosuke having been just, a, like, upside down, gripped onto the ceiling for that whole scene. And Tondra's just been staring up at him while he was talking the whole time. Um, <laughs> that is, it's just, I, I like, reround and watch that scene two or three times because I just thought it was fucking hilarious. It's great. It was very fun to watch with a crowd at the at the theater screening. And yes, I, Hanai Natsuki in that brief moment when Tanjiro thinks that Inosuke must be dead, and he's like, "I must be hallucinating them him." Then, and then we pan up to see Inosuke up there. You know, it's Inosuke's only scene in the season, but it is so funny. We also in the theater they did not play. I think for obvious reasons, the next episode preview that is attached mm-hmm. to this episode, uh, and it is so funny because the next episode preview on this one is Inosuke explaining how he had been up there for two days yes. or something. <laughs> it's just great, and it's like it kind of off that joke the next episode previews this season i think they went above and beyond they are like extremely funny even for a show that has some of the funniest next episode previews they're consistently great this year yeah 
I don't think there's anything quite to the level of um, the Entertainment District Arc 1 that's at the end of the episode that ends with Tondra's, like, collapsed on the ground, covered in blood, and he's, like, hyperventilating because he's, like, <laughs> about to fucking die. And then it goes to the next episode preview, and it's just Nezuko going, like, anyways, here's our Taisho Kosho Kosho Banashi and all that shit. And just <laughs> Tondra's just, like, staring into camera, like, what the fuck is happening? That is still the best next on preview of any show ever. Um, but these yeah. ones are very funny maybe not quite to that level um they don't take the piss out of the shows that much but they are very good here there is the one where Kanroji is like in her own slice of life anime like as mm-hmm. a like basically as like a, a an idol or something and I, I don't know it seemed like they were maybe pitching the next spinoff for kimetsu because that would be very good yes yeah where she's like doing her painting or whatever it's yes. like the only thing that people can love about me is my art um, so it's very good. good. Yeah. Oh, but they're consistently great. Yeah, that was the only thing that was not in the episode when it was in the. Honestly, they might not have had it done when it was in theaters because those next episode previews are very like part of why they're so fun is that they. I don't think they spend a ton of time animating them. Um, but yeah, it's so good. Uh, but yeah, that whole premiere is great. This is also where we're starting to get into a lot of the lore of Kimetsu that is a big part of the second half of the series with um, Tanjiro's dream, which is the title of the episode, Dareka no Yume, Someone's Dream. And we get this dream of, of what seems to be one of Tanjiro's ancestors talking to the first swordsman. Uh, and all of that, which is really cool. And then I like the little cliffhanger at the end of the episode, which is taken from the manga chapter of the, him seemingly seeing that person, but of course it winds up being the Yoriichi Type Zero. Yes. Um, yeah, and all this stuff's interesting because I, I didn't go back and look at the sections of the manga, um, but my memory of the manga is that, I think this is kind of just like inevitable with the two mediums, is that it's more vague in the manga at this point who like, the swordsman's relationship to Tanjiro. Like, I remember there being a stronger implication that Tanjiro was directly related to him. Um, And that I feel like the version of the flashback you get in the anime makes it much more clear that, no, Tanjiro is related to the two, like, not farmers or whatever, like, whatever their job is. Their charcoal. They make charcoal. Is They go out and chop wood and they, yeah. Yeah, the charcoal makers. Um, Because in the manga, for my memory, is... You, it's more vague whose baby that is in the scene, whereas in the anime, it's like very clear. Okay, it's it's that couple. Um, I think that's also partially um, English subtitles can make that stuff much more explicit um, because Japanese can make those things like very context based. Um, but yes, it makes it I think pretty clear that no, Tanjiro is not related to the first swordsman, but he has some sort of memory to him. Um, and obviously, that's all stuff that's going to be very important as it goes forward. But it does set up. The, the stuff with Muichiro that you get later in the season where you learn Muichiro is is a descendant of the first swordsman. Um, in fact, I think that's just established in the next episode after this. And so he has an actual blood relationship to that guy in the flashbacks, whereas Tanjiro has some vague memory of him, but doesn't seem to have any actual like inherited genetic traits from that character. And it is intended to be somewhat ambiguous, uh, especially in the manga, because Tanjiro has a very striking resemblance to both the First yes. Swordsman and to his ancestors. Um, we come to learn that part of that is the whole like mark on his head, and, and that's been yeah. something that was hinted at in, in the Entertainment. And the earrings, too. which and he earrings. has, the Hanafuda earrings, which is something that the First Swordsman has, which is the other yes. like very obvious connection that has come up before through the demons, because whenever the demons see those on Tanjiro, they kind of freak out a little bit. 
Yes, and that is how um, Muzan tells them to find Tanjiro, is look for yeah. the kid with the with the Hanafuda earrings. It's, yeah, it's, so all of that is cool, and I think you're right. I do think in the anime, just somewhat inevitably, you add color, you add voices, you're going to have framing that is a little less subjective. You can't do little paneling things. It's always going to be filling the frame, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's going to be a little less ambiguous as a dream sequence, but I still think they do it very well. And uh, I remember people in the theater were very angry when it cut to black, and they were like, I want to see who this guy is. And I'm yes. like, and I was kind of like, Do, should I just tell them? Oh, that's just like a doll that Tanjiro's going to fight? That's not the actual First Swordsman. You'll learn about him later. Yes, it's uh, this whole thing. One other thing in this first episode is this is obviously you get like an introduction to a bunch of the characters are going to see like Ginya and Muichiro. But like in particular, you get Kanroji, who isn't like, one thing I was surprised at because I just remembered her being in the season or the section of the story more, even though I don't think she is. I think it's just the character makes such a huge impression that, like, in my memory, she had more stuff to do in the manga. But in reality, like, she's mostly here at the very beginning, and I had forgotten that she leaves the village and then comes back. I think that's one yes. of, like, the main things I misremembered about this arc is I thought she was just there when the attack happens. Um, but then, obviously, when she comes back, she gets her big flashback and she helps with the fight. But she's not in the whole middle stretch of this season on um, which i was just kind of surprised at but it but her intro i love i love what they do with her relationship with nezuko and how much they yes, kind of like it's so good I, I feel like it's emphasized even more in the anime of how like because there aren't that many female characters in the series and so it makes sense to me that like nezuko looks up to kanroji as this sort of like role model basically as this like other lady who's just like kicking massive ass but is also like can be very like nice and affectionate at the same time and you know you have the whole scene of um uh tanjiro braiding nezuko's hair to look like kanreji's and all of that like that relationship that's built up there um i just really love how they did it here yeah, there were two things I misremembered about Swordsmith Village Arc, and one of them is exactly what you said, which is that uh, I remembered Mitsuri Kanroji being in it more, and I, I went and looked, and yeah, it is the, the show did not, the Ufo Table did not like take out scenes with Kanroji. That would be a weird thing to do. Um, but she is, yeah, beginning and ending of the arc. And then also, this is a huge season for Nezuko. I forgot how much Nezuko, mm-hmm. she is just one of the main combatants in this season. Yes. She is in parts of the Entertainment District arc, but they put her back in the box because they're worried about her, you know, demoning out and all of that. And there's the whole scene where she almost bites someone. Uh, but she is just one of the main fighters along with the Hashira and Tanjiro and Genya. And I think obviously all leading up to at the end when she survives the sunlight. It, what a, this is like the best stretch mm-hmm. of the series for Nezuko so far, in the, especially yes. in the anime. Just it's so good. Yeah, and I think they've like it's there's something about them, I think, really sort of highlighting that relationship with Kanroji and giving like more of a focus on Nezuko there as well that makes a natural transition to her being a more prominent character. Because yeah, this is like the top tier Nezuko stuff all throughout this season. Um if you really like that character, like they just really nail it here. But also this is where Kanroji um you just get a lot of her um with Hanazawa Kana's performance. It's just a voice actress I adore. Um and so you just get so much good stuff. As well as if you if you kind of have a crush on on Hanazawa Kana, which I kind of do, <laughs> there's one scene that you just want to listen to with headphones, which is when she whispers in Tanjo's ear. If you just want like five seconds of Hanazawa Kana ASMR, <laughs> like that's there for you. It's so good. Um and it's like the only time Tanjo has ever been shown to have like 
any amount of sexual desire is when she whispers in his ear and he does the classic horny anime nosebleed thing, which yes. is just like, a whole, I think it's fucking hilarious having Tanjiro do it because he also, he's holding a plate of rice balls and he like lifts it up above his head and then blood shoots out of his nose because he's horny. But I think it's like interesting the way that that scene plays of where Earlier, they do the sort of, you know, the thing where Kanroji is running down the steps and her breasts are about to fall out of her, her robe or whatever. And Tanjiro does a very Tanjiro thing where it's like, stop, stop, your, you know, your breasts are going to, like, uh, slip out. I mean, he uses the word chibusa in Japanese for breast, which is the most Tanjiro, like, very old world, um, very, like, proper way to refer to someone <laughs> else, that part that part of someone else's body. And he is just sort of, like, tries to close it for her, but it's there's nothing pervy about it. It's very, like, big brother, like, helping his little sister get dressed kind of thing. Um, I just found it interesting, that contrast of, like, where he does not doesn't have that kind of, like, romantic attraction to Conrigi, which is not, like, a big thing in the series. It's not like they're paired together as a romantic pairing. But I thought it was interesting that in the where you would normally get the kind of, like, pervy nosebleed joke, which would be that scene, they don't do it. Like, Tandro is very sort of, like, proper about how all that happens. But then later, when there's, like, that actual kind of intimacy she expresses by whispering in his ear, that's when he has that moment. I just thought that was, like... It's it's kind of a it's a very different way you would handle that sort of thing as as opposed to like a typical shonen anime version of those scenes. Yeah, absolutely. It's all great. Kana Hanazawa, who I also love, she's just she's so good. Even even knowing like okay, they have planted this seed back in season one from 2019 that yeah. we've cast Kana Hanazawa in this part that is very much a seed that they were just we're going to wait for that to grow and when it grows it's going to be great. But I still was like just blown away she's so good when you get to the big episode named you know love hashira mitsuri kanroji and you get her backstory and everything um you know she is very funny and cool throughout this season but also of course she can make that shift into the more earnest emotional side of the story so beautifully makes me very excited for the rest of the series because kanroji has plenty left to do and Mm -hmm. a lot of my favorite stuff near the end of this series involves that character um also she is such a great fucking character design and one Mm -hmm. of the only things holding the manga back at all is that we don't see Kanroji in color. And Kanroji's color design is the best in this whole series. The fucking crazy bubblegum pink and green hair that looks like some kind of crazy ice cream flavor. Uh, all of that. God, it is so cool. It looks so good in Ufa Table's animation. Uh, she, everything they do with her and her sword. She's like, she basically feels like a character Ufo Table invented with her moveset mm-hmm. because she is just like such the ultimate Ufo Table, like running around in 3D kind of fighter. Uh, so great. So, so cool to finally see them kind of pay off on this character that they've clearly been excited to get to if you watch the, the prior anime seasons. Yeah, it's especially when she gets to fight and you get to see the way that Ufo Table can bring that out in full animation is really impressive but yeah it's just like she was one of the characters i was very excited to see more of um and it's just that she all of her stuff in this first episode is just fucking so well done um yeah and it's it's that you know it turned out that them casting like every big name voice actor they could think of back in the end of season one is really paying dividends now that we're actually getting to um all those characters getting their big moments 
Yeah, I love. I, I just love imagining like Ufo Table, you know, hitting up these actors and being like, "Listen, we're we're asking you to come in for like two lines right now, but eventually you're going to do you're going to star in a whole season of this thing, and everyone's yeah. going to love you." And basically, everybody, we're just going down the list, and everybody is getting those moments. The one we haven't talked about yet being Muichiro uh, Tokito, voiced by Kengo Kawanishi, uh, who is, I think, really the star and heart and soul of this season. Like mm-hmm. Tanjiro. Is uh, Tanjiro has a lot of big stuff at the beginning and end, but I think especially with the middle, I, Muichiro is the driving force of this season to me. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, Kanriji doesn't really get a full, I think what you described as character arc in this season. Like, she, the most she gets is she has her flashback, which is basically like her character arc, because that's like kind of a whole story in and of itself. Whereas Muichiro, he is the one who like grows and changes over the course of his story through his connection to Tanjiro rather than that being the opposite and like Tanjiro does get some growth and particularly you know I think that becomes clear in the last episode with his relationship with Nezuko but yeah it's not as much of a focus here as it was in Mugen Train or the Pleasure District arc and so yeah so Michiro gets really front and center um and yeah you've got Kawanishi Kengo um who we know very well because he's uh, Mikazaki in Iron-Blooded Orphans um, obviously a very similar kind of emotional range character. He's also the main guy in um, March Comes in Like a Lion, which is one of my favorite anime. So he's, you know, just a really, really good voice actor. And his stuff here, you know, I think he's like an actor that often gets cast in these kinds of roles that have generally a pretty narrow emotional range the character operates in. And then every once in a while, the character has to kind of explode in some ways or like really break outside of the, those confines. And he just does such a good job across this whole season to bring that character to life in the ways in which he's very kind of quiet, but also very sharp early on. And then the ways he becomes more vulnerable. And then he also voices his brother Yuichiro in the flashback as well. Um, And so it's a, yeah, it's a very sort of masterful performance for a great character that, as you say, is in many ways, the kind of heart and soul of the season. Like there's a big, there's a good reason why the very end of the fight is Muichiro is the one who throws the sword to Tanjiro, right? And that's where the stories intersect once again at the very end is like Tanjiro gives Muichiro this thing, this like lesson, this kernel near the beginning of the season. It grows and blossoms into Muichiro being able to sort of reclaim himself. And then he gives this, like comes back with that for Tanjiro so Tanjiro can end it. Um, And that's kind of like the broad arc of the season. Um, So yeah, he's very much the key character here. Yeah, and and it was the character I was just most excited to get into after having read the manga because of uh, every Hashira in Kimetsu is an amazing character. Just mm-hmm. every single one of them is an amazing ten out of ten all time great anime character. But of the non Rengoku ones, because I think Rengoku is in like a special little class over here. Mm-hmm. He got his own movie, you know. Yeah. Um, he's he's a hero. Of all of the rest of them, Muichiro was my favorite reading the manga. And he has a lot of good stuff to come after this as well. But this is his arc. And I do think, like, it is such a cool journey. It is such an interesting story. He is kind of the prototypical Hashira in in that he starts and you think he's one thing. And he grows and you see he is a different thing. And I think they Mm -hmm. do that with pretty much every one of the Hashira characters. We saw that with, you know, Tengen last season of, you know, he seems, you know, very kind of like stuck up and cruel. And then eventually you see what a a caring person he is uh, amidst all the flashiness and all that kind of stuff. And they do this with all of the characters to different degrees. Even Kanroji, you start the season with her quipping about how she joined the Demon Slayer Corps to find a husband. And Tanjiro is very confused by this. And then at the end we see... 
it's it's that's true, but it's much more complicated than yes. what we thought. And I think Muichiro just has one of the most compelling versions of this, where he is a very similar character to Tanjiro in so many ways. He is this incredible, you know, talent. He has this sibling relationship, but he lost the sibling instead of Tanjiro being able to save his sibling. Um, and all of this shit happened. And I think the way he is, and then he has amnesia and how he is emotionally deadened and seems cruel at the beginning of this story. Uh, and you open up and, and once you get to the line, you know, the Mu in Muichiro means infinity. You can do anything because you care about people, which is basically you could just plaster that on the front of Kimetsu no Yaiba as the tagline for the series. Uh, it's such an amazing journey. It's such an amazing arc. The character lives on past this point in the story, but even if his story ended here, it is such a beautiful, full, kind of like three-act character arc building up to, as you say, the end where he is the one who gets the sword to Tanjiro and... Tanjiro's, you know, sort of lesson about if you do something good for someone, it will come back to you, all pays off in such a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Japanimation Station. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and tell your friends. You can support the show directly on Ko-Fi at the link in the description. And remember to check out the Weekly Stuff podcast, our long-running series on movies and video games and everything else on all platforms. And now, back to the show. <laughs> so where do we, how do we want to break down this season? Because we kind of <laughs> well, yeah, hit the so, first episode in the major characters. Yeah, we hit the first episode, we hit the major characters. Uh, I mean, right now, we should just talk about, in the second episode, you get one of the other major characters we haven't mentioned, Kotetsu who I yes. fucking love, little boy Kotetsu, voiced by Ayumu Murase, who is the like comedic lifeblood of this season. He is so funny. Um, the little boy who you know takes care of the mechanical training doll uh, and all of that. It's and then becomes Tanjiro's very mean, abusive teacher for an episode. Yes, and then his friend, and then of course is the one who Muichiro's entire character arc kind of revolves around because he saves Kotetsu when he has the chance and all of that. It's it's because Kotetsu is like the character who links all the different parts mm -hmm. of this season because he moves between the stories and the fights. Yeah, and it's a very good comic performance. That also is like all of the Swordsmith Village characters, right? Like Kotetsu, I think, is the one who's most prominent here. But you have like, obviously, Hagenezuka-san is here in the background. You've got the um, chief village also, or the village chief um, who is fucking great uh, whose name is uh, Techin Techi Kawahara which is so fucking good um, I love all the village characters in Kotetsu particularly um, because they are because they're like you know the heart and like and like the lifeblood of this arc in so many ways because it's about protecting them and this village and the thing of them like creating these swords um, is so much of what the season is about and Kotetsu is especially being a kid like it feels like he represents all that because he's the one who has all this potential still to grow um, and kind of live up to this legacy of his family and all that, or he could be, end up getting snuffed out um, early by these demons. And so it adds that kind of fundamental stakes and tension and represents ex what the demon slayers are here fighting for in this arc. Um, and yeah, it's just a great character. Like we're going to say Ayamu, of course, like we know very well as Venti in uh, Genshin Impact um, is like kind of like the big thing I've seen him. And I know he's in Haikyuu. He's one of the main characters there. Um, which is the thing that most people are actually going to know him from. But if you know Genshin, it's Venti. It's like one of the best performances in that game. Um, so it was fun to have him here as well. 
And yeah, I, I just think like the whole message of this season that Kotetsu really represents, and particularly his re- uh, relationship with Muichiro, of this notion of you have these prodigies, right? Muichiro is a prodigy from his bloodline, and then Kanreji is a prodigy because of her sort of like unique body that her she has these like super dense muscles or whatever that allows her to be this like amazing and very unique fighter. But neither of them like but that doesn't matter if they don't have a sword right like it doesn't matter how good you are or how much of a genius you are or whatever and also it obviously undercuts the notion of them just being geniuses with they also train their fucking asses off in you know blood sweat and tears and all that it's not like nobody is a prodigy on the back of no effort that's not a thing that exists but even if you were that doesn't matter because you can't do anything on your own you need other people you need a community that supports you and it provides for you for you to be able to do the things you need to do in the world and that's exactly what kotetsu is right and if michiro had ignored kotetsu's plight early in the season when he's like i need to go prioritize the village chief first and like and all that he has this very logical breakdown of what he does and doesn't need to protect when and how um and kotetsu is at the bottom of that totem pole but if he had gone through with that process like michiro would have been killed and it would have been all for naught because his sword would have broken or like he would have on his own, not be able to accomplish anything. It's through working with these other people that he's able to fight to his best and win. Yes. And in fact, and I think we should just have a thematic conversation about the season right here, because all of this is important. But one thing I want to say, this is, I'm going to respond to a random commenter on our YouTube page from like two years ago. Okay. when When we talked about the Entertainment District and Mugen Train arc, we made the point that the big movement from Mugen Train to Entertainment District is that realization that nobody is ever going to beat one of the upper rank demons alone. It's just not possible. That's the whole idea there at the end of Mugen Train is that Rengoku is the best of these people. He is so capable. He is so brave. And he absolutely does this admirable, amazing job on Akaza. But it isn't a fair fight because Akaza can regenerate and he on all of these things, right? And and if Rengoku loses an arm or gets stabbed, that's it for him, and that's not the case for Akaza. So, you know, Rengoku absolutely outclasses this guy, but he still loses. And so the movement then in the Entertainment District arc is they do beat an upper-ranked demon, but they only do it because they all work together and they fundamentally have this realization about that. And I did have a commenter, or, or it might have been on Twitter, I don't remember where this was, but someone commenting to me like, hey, you're forgetting about one case. And I was like, and they were talking about Muichiro killing... Mm-hmm. Um, what is it, Gyoko? The Gyoko, the, yeah. yeah, Gyoko here, and I, uh, I didn't say it at the time, but watching it here, that is wrong. He does not beat Gyoko alone. He he does the finishing blow alone and all of that. But uh, there is that whole section of this season where Muichiro is in the big like water, you know, bubble that Gyoko has created, and he is drowning, and he cannot get out of it, and he tries it, he can't do it. And he's going to die until Kotetsu, the boy he saved, comes in and gives him his air, like this very literal air, the breathing, the lifeblood of this series and all of their techniques. And that is how Muichiro is able to get out of there. And if it weren't for Kotetsu, he would he would have died in a very yeah. like embarrassing way, <laughs> frankly, right? And Muichiro learns that and is humbled by that and he takes that forward. And so in a very real sense, yeah, nobody does this one-on-one. And that is, of course, what this whole season is about. There's a very, and I think you tie that into, this is also a show, and this will become clear more as we move towards the ending, but this is also very much a show thinking about, you know, generations, and I think a lot of, this is something I think that sometimes 
I see in reactions to Demon Slayer from Western readers who maybe don't have a background in this. This show is like just very deeply informed by Eastern spirituality in a way that I think a lot of anime is is not to the same degree. And it is thinking about things like reincarnation and the wheel of Dharma and the idea. This is a whole idea in this season. It's basically Tanjiro's whole idea is this sort of karmic idea about how everybody is there is this interconnectedness this fundamental interconnectedness and i think all of that is going on here there's the conversation tanjiro has with kotetsu in the second episode where kotetsu is so sad about the machine being broken because muichiro is a dick and um tanjiro gives the whole idea about well maybe you won't be able to fix it but maybe you'll be able to create the conditions by which someone else will be able to and i think that is what this entire season is about and it's setting up what ultimately this whole show is about yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So let's yeah, talk about some of that the spiritual stuff there because it is it is like very fundamental to Kimetsu no Yaiba in a way that as you say I think is like you know most anime is informed I mean all anime is informed by like Japanese spiritual thinking in the same way that all American and like Western fiction is informed by some way by Christ in the Bible, yes. right? Like it's, there's a reason why, even if you're trying not to, it's pretty fucking hard to avoid Christ metaphors often <laughs> because it's just, it's so baked into the way you think about stories in your worldview, even if you're not a religious person. Um, and so it's pretty omnipresent in Japanese anime and fiction, but it's usually kind of in the same way that that stuff is omnipresent in Western fiction. It's not omnipresent in a way that they're like intentionally examining it or that it's about that. It's just sort of like a, the background radiation of making a story within a culture. It's going to include elements of that culture or it's something where it's something like Dragon Ball, where it will include it, but it's not as like a big dramatic element. It's more of like the fundamental composition of the world and have fun with it and that kind of thing. Um, here, though, in Kimetsu no Yaiba, and I think this is something that you can miss the way that I think I did for a lot of when I was reading the manga. If you're someone who is not religious or not spiritual, I have like a tendency to take things that are represented spiritually as just like purely metaphor and just move on from that because that's just how I view the world in real life. Um, but in Kimetsu Yaiba, you can't really view it just purely metaphorically. Like, you're meant to understand that it literally is happening. Like, at the end of the Entertainment District arc, when they have a scene that represents Gyutado and Daki in effectively, like, limbo, how is what we would refer to it, and Gyutado's on his way to hell, he's telling Daki, go to heaven, and she's like, no, I'm going to go with you, we'll be together forever, um, and they walk together into Jigoku, or hell, like, that is a thing you're meant to understand has literally happened. It's a, in a metaphysical sense. It's in, like, a spiritual plane. But the afterlife actually exists. The cycle of reincarnation actually exists. Karma actually exists. Like, those are all real things. Those are actual spiritual forces at work in the world of Kimetsu no Yaiba. It's not purely symbolic. And so you can't, like... So if you're trying to approach the show and break down the show's story and what it's saying and what it's doing, you can't just sort of dismiss it as a thing that is metaphorical, it's something that you really need to incorporate. Like when Tanjiro in this season has that moment where he's training and he has this sort of flash of, and it's kind of a very funny moment, but he has this flash of, oh, I'm on like the river Sanzu, which is basically the river sticks more <laughs> or less. And like, there's all these other spirits and they're massaging me. And he goes, momi, 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 momi. And then they're massaging him and he falls into the river and he sinks to the bottom. At the bottom, he sees the glittering stone. He grabs it and then he wakes up and all of a sudden he has this ability to, he sees it or perceives it through smell because that's the mechanism by which he does it. But he's able to perceive the world on 
like a deeper, more fundamental level, which is a thing that continues to happen at the end of this season. He's able to literally see through the demon and he's able to perceive through the demon's body and see that little demon in the heart of the bigger demon's body. Um, that's a thing that will continue to develop in the last arc. Like those are things that you're meant to understand. He's literally doing like, I think he's literally he is in tune with some higher spiritual plane. He has connected with the afterlife in some way in that moment. And he's come back from it with like a matrix like ability to be able to perceive the world on a more fundamental level and see through these sort of like physical shell and these sort of the material things that we perceive the universe to be. He's able to perceive through that something more fundamental, something that Tanjiro's always been able to do. That's always what his smell thing is. They never explain his smell thing as he's like an X-Man mutant character. It's that his nature as a person and the way he has lived his life gives him the ability to be able to perceive the world on a more fundamental level so he can tell where demons are. He can tell what people's intent is and he perceives it through smell. But that's just the physical mechanism through which he perceives something more fundamental about the world. Um, and that's like those elements are have been through Kimetsu Yaiba so far, but it's definitely becomes much heavier here in this arc where, yeah, like this is about karma. It is about the idea of you exist as one small part in a much larger cycle in a much larger world. And whatever you do as part of that cycle, that affects everything else. And if you live your life in like a just and righteous way, in, in the large scope of history, right, maybe not even in your lifetime, but in the large scope of the world, you living a just and righteous life will have just and righteous things happen in turn. And you will and the world will move in a better direction because of that small influence that you have. That's Tandra's fundamental worldview. And that fundamental worldview is in direct opposition of everything that the demons in Kibitsuji Muzan represent because they want eternal life. They Their sin is that they want to be removed from the cycle of reincarnation. They want to be removed from that sort of fundamental relationship of nature and the spirit. And that is their great crime and why they cannot exist because it is a crime against the natural order of the world. And all of those things are like, I think, so vital to be able to break down what the show is doing. And that becomes very obvious when you get into the last arc, which obviously we're going to explain what all those things are here. But it's like, if you're watching the show and you're not thinking about things on that level, you probably want to shift the way you're thinking because it will make the last arc so much more rewarding if you start seeing things in that light. Yeah, and, and I have I have seen and another conversation I want to have is I have seen this year specifically more more pushback in the Western fandom against this show, and there's always been the contrarian streak of this thing is popular, so it must be bad, and mm -hmm. that's just annoying shitheads on the internet. But I have seen also the like people who just kind of, in their own words, don't get what the fuss is, uh, or actively think you know I've seen the critique. Oh, this is the second season in a row. There's just one big fight. There's no story. Blah blah blah. Not true, but and we can talk about why that's not true uh, for obvious reasons. But like I do think some of it sometimes is. This is not a superhero show. This is not a like individualistic American style story of like kind of individual excellence winning out. It is very deeply the opposite. And I do think, you know, this this season why we're bringing it up here is I do think Swordsmith Village is the turning point where that those thematic ideas start becoming really central to what Kimetsu is doing. They're there from chapter one of the manga, but they're a little more backgrounded and they just come into greater focus. So as you're saying, the, the Tanjiro thing of crossing the river is very funny, but it is also fundamentally, it's the same idea as to 
talk about another UFO table show, it's the same idea of the root in the Garden of Sin <laughs> yes. or Garden of Words or or no Garden of Words is a different thing. Garden of Sinners yes. is what we were talking about. Karen Okiokai um, or Fate Stay Night. It's the same idea. It is about there is something at death is not just this sad absolute end point. It is also connected to birth and to life and to kind of the wheel of reincarnation and whatever else you want to call it is this place of truth where things come from and part of the entire idea that that kimetsu has that it it shares with a lot of other shonen media which is you know dragon ball does this you get pushed to extreme points and then you do extreme things but kimetsu is also seeing that in that idea of like getting closer to death gets you closer to like birth and life and the truth and all of that yeah, and that it's also with Kimetsu. We've talked before about one of the things that makes this show really remarkable within the scope of its genre is how earnestly it approaches and how seriously it approaches the fundamental core, like kind of values and thematic underpinnings of the battle shonen jump thing um, in a way that most of those series don't actually do. They usually kind of, you know, they'll do them halfway and kind of more pay lip service sometimes because I think it's hard to be this earnest it's hard to like hit this stuff that hard um and you get it really heavily here because this season is so much about how like tanjo is not the fucking chosen one you know he's not the genius savior and that's something you get in you start getting also in the entertainment district arc where you have the whole thing of the the scar on his head which is what not something he was born with he's not the like destined wielder of the Hinokami Kagura dance or the sun-breathing style or whatever. He is not the descendant of the first swordsman. That's fucking Muichiro, right? Um, Tanjiro is obviously a very talented person. He is very skilled. He's worked very hard. But you also have to keep in mind that in it's it's easy to forget that he has trained for literal years in the show. There's like a huge time jump when he's with Uruko Daki-san where he's trained for like three or four years or something. Um, and he's trained, and it's probably a couple of years have passed at this point because between each arc, you have multiple months of him training and or he's in a coma. Um, so there's like right. lots of time has passed. He has worked really hard. He is not someone who has just like been given these skills. Um, he has had to work incredibly hard to get where he's at and he is not capable of beating these fucking demons like ever like he's not even close on his own like he can't he's nowhere near as good as Michiro right if it was just Tanjiro fighting the upper fourth Tanjiro would have been dead in like two fucking seconds it's because he's got Ginya and Nezuka with him and then later when Kanroji comes in that Tanjiro is able to survive and he's a very capable fighter he's a very capable like thinker and tactician and all that kind of stuff he's a very valuable player but no matter how valuable the player is, one valuable player can't win a game of fucking football or basketball or whatever sports metaphor you want to make. Um, he needs to like work in this larger context with this larger team. And it's one of the things I love about Kimetsu no Yaiba is it is just so insistent on rejecting that kind of chosen one style storytelling that I think Shonen Jump series typically like say that they're not about but like always basically are right like like naruto basically is like i think naruto complicates it to a certain extent but he's basically a chosen one style character you find out that he's the son of the fourth hokage he's obviously has the nine-tailed demon fox in him which gives him like this incredible source of power like he is such a kind of destined character even if he has to work really hard to be like worth that destiny he is a very destined style character i i've not seen engaged with one piece deeply but i know that one piece has that kind of stuff for luffy as well like he is from like an important bloodline and that kind of shit goku is a magical 
monkey boy at first, um, which makes him incredibly special. And then later you learn that he is an actual alien who has come to Earth and he's, you know, like Krillin, no matter how Krillin tar trains, he will never be able to go Super Saiyan because he's not a Saiyan, right? So it is an inevitable thing with how long these series go. Yu Yu Hakusho does the same thing with Yusuke in that series that like the bloodline and like where the character comes from, that stuff ends up having to a certain extent, it gets touched by this sort of destiny style thing of them being this destined character. And that's not a bad thing. That's totally fine. Like so many stories are like that. Like that's like all the mythology, whether you're talking Japanese mythology or Western mythologies always deal in that kind of shit. There's a reason why heroes are always descended by gods and things like that from various mythologies. Uh, it's a it's a thing that is very natural for I think our human storytelling to lean towards, and I just like how deeply Kimetsu Yaiba rejects that worldview. That one Tanjiro just is not that person. He is not. He is the descendant of people who made charcoal, who knew the first swordsman, but he is not a descendant of the first swordsman himself. Um, and even the people who are those, and that's what you get here in this season. You have two people who are prodigies legitimately. You have Michiro, who is from a destined bloodline, basically, in this worldview. He, then you have Kanroji, who is like a freak of nature, whose like, body composition it allows her to do things that no person, no matter how hard you work, could do. Right? She's like the, the Demon Slayer equivalent of being born as Shaquille O'Neal. It's like, it doesn't matter how hard you work um, <laughs> playing basketball. You can't be fucking Shaq because the dude's like seven feet tall, right? And he's built like a brick house. And obviously Shaq has to work very hard to be good. There are lots of other people that have that body composition that can't be as good as he is at basketball because he worked really hard. But no matter how hard you work, you're not going to be able to have that body. That's just not how it works. But the even if you have those things, even if you're a prodigy, even if you're a genius... You have to work hard to be able to capitalize on whatever that is. Michiro has to train his ass off to be a good swordsman, even if he has like a natural aptitude for it. Kanroji has to train her ass off to be able to fight, even if she does have like a very powerful sort of innate body. Um, but again, those things are worthless in the face of the demons. It doesn't matter how much of a prodigy you are. You can't kill them just because you're good at fighting with swords. You got to have a magic, you know, sword that is made by people who are geniuses at their own skill craft. Um, and you need to have an entire support structure of a whole community of demon slayers that are creating like an infrastructure that allows you to be able to operate, that gives you safe haven, some place to escape to, that like is able to organize missions together, that's able to organize teams together, right? Because you you can't beat these demons on your own. It's just not possible. Like you are a human, no matter how hard you push yourself, you cannot defeat these things on your own, um, right? Kanroji's whole thing is she has both this incredible body um, but she also has like the most insane sword ever that the village chief is the guy who made it because he's the most skilled person in the village. And he is presumably the only person who can make her crazy Ivy whip sword. Um, and so all those things come together in this season to really effectively, I think, hammer home this point of that there is no chosen one here. There is no destined one savior like, that person doesn't exist. The only way you can beat the demons is through your community. It is through communal effort. And it's through believing in, like, higher things, like these kind of spiritual concepts and working with those of the karmic idea and of reincarnation and of, like, even if you don't complete it in your 
generation, you will leave this, you will leave a better path for the next generation to follow until eventually through the scope of history, this problem gets solved. Even if it's not by you, you lay one more brick on the path for other people to be able to walk. And that in and of itself is noble. And that in and of itself is good enough. And that's like, I think such an empowering and compelling worldview for a series to have. And I just adore Kimetsu Yaiba for having the commitment to really follow through on it. And you see it so much, particularly in this season, how far it's willing to commit to that perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking about Tanjiro specifically, he has, and this has been true from the beginning of the series, and it gets another, you know, spotlight here. He has two superpowers, and they are effortfulness, and they are empathy. And those are two Mm -hmm. things that anybody can have. You can, you know, exert yourself and have and put effort into something and you can have empathy for people. And those are the two things that really put him apart is he has this, you know, like um, I think Han Tengu in the middle of the season is like being like, God, this kid will not quit. And he's very sharp on his feet and he's figuring stuff out. And that all comes from Tanjiro's fundamental. He will not give up and he will always push as far as he can possibly push, push and then go a little further. Um, And he is also very smart on his feet and insightful. But that insightfulness also comes from his fundamental empathy for people Mm -hmm. and for things. And, you know, and I say I use the word empathy. I think that's almost more of like a kind of western non-religious way to like put it but it also is coming from this like spiritual he has this kind of connection to living things and to the interconnectedness of being and of karma and all of these things right um and he passes that along and so in swordsmith village arc he specifically passes that empathy along to muichiro who is able to do all the amazing things he does this season because of that little you know seed planted by tanjiro and of course all of the others like tanjiro is really good at getting people who are often more skilled than him. I think there's a good argument to be made that Zenitsu and Inosuke are both like more naturally talented than Tanjiro is. They can do really crazy fucking shit. Um, One of which Tanjiro borrows at the end of this season, which is very cool. But like here you have Genya, who is incredible and can do crazy stuff. And you have, you know, at the end he's fighting with Kanroji and they all are able to do what they do because of like the insight Tanjiro gives them and that kind of, he's like conducting all these people. But yeah, even even in the moments when Tanjiro does pull off amazing like physical acts, his biggest moments of heroism tend to be his influences on other people in the story, which tells you a lot about what this story is about. Yeah, and and I don't want to go into it too far because it sort of edges on manga spoiler stuff. But like, just like to head off, I think a criticism that people might have, which is like the Mark thing, right? Which is like the closest thing that Kimetsu no Yaiba has to a Super Saiyan is um, at the end of the Demon or the Entertainment District arc. Uh, Tanjiro awakens to that, like the actual Mark, the thing that is sort of in that prophecy or whatever of like the first Swordsman. Um, he uses that, and that's what gives him this burst of strength, seemingly to be able to kill. Um, uh, Yutado there or like cut his head off Um, and then in this season you see both Tanjiro is able to now call that up by will that's part of that scene you were alluding to earlier with his flaming sword and he does the cool thing where he cuts off all the demons heads Um, but then also you see Muichiro awakens to it and you see Kanroji awakens to it um, and like the that mark thing is something that's going to be like explained and explored in the next story arc, but it is like fundamentally tied to all these ideas that there is a reason why Misha and Kanroji are able to awaken to that mark after they are like touched by the empathy of Tanjiro, right? Like that's like that thing you're talking about of like Tanjiro's empathy and his like sort of spiritual understanding of the world is passed on to Muichiro and it's after Muichiro is able to process that that he too is able to access that kind of deeper power 
Um, and there's a lot more that goes into that that we won't get into. But all of those different elements are all in the service of that larger storytelling goal and that larger kind of like thematic idea at the heart of Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, and then the other thing that I guess like this, this is kind of going to the ending, but it's another thing that I, I've, I've seen this criticism before. And I think it's one of the places where the spiritual storytelling stuff is really essential to under, to understand like why Kimetsu no Yaiba is structured this way is I know that there are people that are, um, like disappointed by the explanation of how like Muzan became a demon, which we get at the very end of the season. And then also you have like Nezuko seemingly magically being able to um, survive the sunlight. And that has like a sort of like prophesied destined child sort of thing. But both of those moments are framed in very specific ways of that Nezuko is only able to survive being hit by the sunlight after she has made an act of self-sacrifice, right? She has decided, I'm going to kick Tanjiro away. I'm going to make him go do the thing that he knows he really needs to do. He knows this, like the best thing to do is to go save those people. Like, And she makes that act of self-sacrifice. Before that point, she is burning in the fucking sun. It is once she does that is when she is able to stand in the sun now because she has spiritually like purged herself in that way. She has done the one thing that no demon has ever done that we have ever seen. She makes an, an act of truly like noble self-sacrifice. Um, and the demons are defined fundamentally by their selfishness because that is then directly contrasted with very intentionally so by UFO table here and how they frame it and why I think one of the reasons they wanted it is one episode is you then get the explanation of how Muzan became a demon. And it's super simple. He was a thousand years ago in the Heian period. He was dying from some disease. A doctor was trying to help him out. Um, gave him this experimental medicine that used the blue spider lily or whatever. The blue spider lily is a MacGuffin. Like, that part is not actually important. It's one of the things that Muzan misunderstands. Um, and he takes that medicine. Uh, he thinks the medicine doesn't work. And then he brutally murders this doctor, a guy who was just trying to help Muzan. Muzan kills him just out of, like, spite for the whole world because Muzan is a cruel, spiteful person who he just wants to outlive everything else. He has this line where he says, I wish I could just kill everything. Because if he's going to die, he doesn't see the purpose of the world continuing on without him. Because the whole world exists for his pleasure and his purpose. And it's like cruel that he's being taken out of it um, by this disease. And so he kills, murders that doctor. And it's after he murders the doctor that all of a sudden now the medicine works and the medicine turns him into a demon. But it's like, what turns him into the demon is that act of killing the doctor. And I think that, like, that's not me saying that that's symbolically. I think that's literally why he turns into a demon. I think if he hadn't killed that doctor, the medicine would have done nothing. He would have just fucking passed away and re-entered the cycle of reincarnation and all that stuff. Uh, because he murders that guy, it, it taints his soul. It corrupts him, and that's what turns him into this monster. In the same way that if Nezuko had not decided to kick Tanjiro away, I think she would have burned up in the sun. And that would have been the end of the story for her. It's because she makes an act of self-sacrifice that she kind of purges herself. And that's what allows her to be this new thing, a demon who can live in the sunlight. And so it's, to me, it is extremely intentional how those moments are framed, the order in which things happen, and that we perceive physical reasons for why this occurs. Like Tamiyo is testing Nezuko's blood. She sees this, there's a physical mechanism through which these spiritual things operate. There's a physical mechanism through which the, he becomes a demon for Muzan, but that is just a physical mechanism through which the spiritual operates. And it's the exact same kind of thing as like the fucking midichlorians in Star Wars. I was about like, to say that. I, I knew we, we, we think the same way, Sean. 
yeah. Because it's like, it's all the people who are just like, oh, Metachlorians and Star Wars just ruin what the Force is. It's like, no, it's just, it doesn't matter whatever it is. It's just a physical mechanism through which, like, the spiritual interfaces with the physical world we live in. It doesn't matter that it's blood. It's not actually her blood that's special. That's just a manifestation of the spiritual, because the spiritual is the real world. That is the actual world that Tandra perceives when he smells things. It is like seeing through the Matrix. Like, that, like the world we perceive is an illusion. And so that illusion comes up with excuses. It comes up with mechanisms through which the fundamental actual reality of the spiritual world we really live in is able to operate. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, it's so true. And I do think, like, I had predicted in my head, especially because this is how one of the chapters of the manga in this area ends, is that I really thought season three was going to end on the mic drop of Nezuko, like, rising up in the sun and surviving. And that would kind of be the moment we end on. And when I realized, oh, we're only halfway through the episode, and they go on and they do the Muzan backstory, it immediately became clear to me, you have to have both of these. You have yes. to contrast them, not because of any expository function, but because thematically that's important. Because this is the thing Muzan has been trying to find for a thousand years, and it is the thing he never could have done because he is not Nezuko and he does not have any kind of love or any kind of self-sacrifice instinct and he is a piece of shit who and I also there is a class critique here going on as well because mm -hmm. Muzan is a noble in the Heian yes. period he has a whole fucking castle he has servants that doctor works for him all of that stuff and he just spits on these people and he sees them as things and he carries himself like nobility in the present day as well right and there is absolutely mm -hmm. a class thing going on there I think um, um, but yes, he is someone who is, he is a demon because he was evil before he became a demon. You know, he yes. spit on and rejected humanity before he became a demon. And he is a demon because he spit on and rejected his own fundamental humanity. He cannot embrace any of the things that Tanjiro and Nezuko and company are embracing to defeat him. And that is why he is opening himself up for defeat, if that is where the story goes. Yeah, it is just like, there's something I love about how it's so small and cruel and petty what he does. There's no reason for him to kill this doctor. It's just out of this petty spite um, at the world um, and all this shit. Uh, and it is really effective. And it does like, you know, that whole last episode and all and that contrast there, it just puts such a fine point on like, what is that fundamental difference between Nezuko and Muzan, but then by extension, Tandra and Muzan as well. And the whole split between humanity or the demon slayers and the demons is it comes down to for this season, how it frames it is that selflessness versus selfishness, right? That um, what T Tamayo says in her letter to Tanjiro, um, where she's like predicts that Nezuko may be able to resist the sunlight at some point is that Nezuko has sort of abandoned her sense of self. They use the word Jiga there. Um, which is basically the kanji for that are two different words that mean self. Um, so it's like her, her sense of self, her sense of individualism is what she has sort of rejected, right? Because we see that other demons, right? They lack self-control, but they don't lack a sort of personality. They don't lack a sort of like adult human intelligence and stuff like that. Nezuko is very unique in that she's reduced to this sort of infantile state um, for most of what we have seen her. And she's slowly been rebuilding that up until this season where she does seem very sharp, very intelligent, um, very responsive to what people tell her, right? So it's like you have seen her slowly growing over the course of the, the show. And at this point, she does just sort of seem like a normal person with superpowers that happens to have a muzzle on her mouth, not like 
a weird baby creature that has superpowers, which is kind of what she's been for most of this. Um, but she has rejected that and abandoned that individualness and that self in order to protect something that's more important. And Tamiya doesn't say what it is, but right, I think you can very clearly see that it is both Tanjiro, but it's also humanity in general, right? That she has rejected those things in order for her to be able to be still an agent of sort of like goodness in the world, um, that she doesn't need to have her individuality to do that. She can trust her brother to point her in the right direction and to kind of guide her, but she doesn't need to be an individual in order to do good things in the world in that way. And she reduces into a much more kind of primal state while she slowly builds herself back up to be able to have that again. Um, and I think that that's such a like kind of beautiful way of framing the nature of the thing that like the other demons would never be willing to do. And the thing and like the big sacrifices Nezuko has made for herself in order to be, to, to achieve this unprecedented thing is she has reduced herself into an infantile state in order to be kind of re, like symbolically in this case, be reborn um, in that way where all the other demons we have encountered would never make that choice. They're so self-centered. They're so self-obsessed. They would never be able to abandon their sort of like individualism and individual identity for some sort of greater goal or purpose. And certainly Muzan would never be able to do that. Um, and so there's something I think very poetic about, the way that Tamiyo sort of frames that in her letter to, to Tanjiro. And this even comes down to, you know, I've already said, I don't think the two major upper rank demons here are the most interesting, but they are still thematically appropriate for this yes. season in a bunch of ways. You know, Gyoko is also a prodigy. He's an artist. He loves to create things. Now, as a demon, he's creating things through murdering people and stringing their bodies together, and that's horrible. But, like, he is an interesting foil for Muichiro on that same level, mm -hmm. right? And then I think with Han Tengu, what they do at the end here, the Toshio Furukawa version of him, the, the one who has fear on his tongue, that kanji, and is this little old man who is scared and frightened. We get like the little glimpse of his backstory in this final episode as Tanjiro is going to finish the job after he thinks he has lost Nezuko. And it is this character is kind of the exact opposite of Nezuko in that moment. He is, And he is kind of the root of all of the demons. He is just this scared old man shivering in the corner because he fears letting go of himself of dying of of the world existing without him any of that it's a very basic human fear it's an understandable one but it's one that has allowed him to warp everything to the degree that he thinks he is not only justified in hurting others and we even see that in the past of him as a criminal he thinks that all justifies it but that anyone attacking him is as he says an awful villain they even name one of the episodes after that whole rant that one of them goes on of like how can you attack this poor helpless thing and he's not a poor helpless thing he is someone with agency who has made choices and has come to this point and now he's going to pay his just desserts and i think you contrast that with nezuko who is on the surface more of a seemingly like helpless child and kind of you know he she gets carried around in a box and all this stuff right but she is not that thing and in fact she self-actualizes very powerfully on top of that and in the moment when the chips are down and she is facing the end of her life she is fundamentally thinking about what is the most good my brother this good person can do and it is to save those other lives and it is it's just a very strong thematic contrast even when they are not the flashiest, most interesting characters. The upper rank demons are always really well thought out foils for the heroes. Yeah, and yeah, you especially have there with Han Tengu that he's like this person who 
because he was misfortunate in his life um, and like had misfortune fall upon him in some ways, he uses that as an excuse to do bad things to other people, right? Like he twists like the logic of karma in this disgusting way of like, oh, because bad things have happened to me, that then gives me the right to do bad things to other people. Um, and he has taken that so far that he just like constructs situations in which bad things happen to him. So you can justify bad doing bad things to other people, right? We learn that he um, isn't actually blind or whatever. It's a very brief flashback, but part of that story I think is really effective is you have the nobleman say like, I have had um, basically Zatoichi visit me before, a blind masseuse visit, visit me before. And when he does, he faces the wall until I speak and then he realizes where I am and he will turn to face me, whereas you've been facing me the whole time. Like you're not even blind. Like you've been deceiving and conning people and, and putting yourself in this position where people will do bad things to you so you can justify the bad things and the injustices you visit on other people. Um, and it is such a, a kind of juicy perversion of the life that Tantra lives. Um, and it's very effective in that way. And then, yes, then you have the other one, Gyoko, um, who you don't really get a big flashback for, but you do... I love his whole contrast with Haganezuka, who is there... Um, like trying to polish and fix this sword that was put in like basically you know samurai Excalibur and it was put in this like ancient robot and all this shit uh, it's a very cool sword uh, and he's like so dedicated to just like polish this thing off that he doesn't even care that he's being like slowly cut to death by the demon and the demon is infuriated by this because the demon's like art is so like self-centered and self-obsessed he's making it's very much like a I'm making art purely for art's sake and just so other people will pay attention and admire me or like to provoke them. And it's like he's making art for such petty reasons, whereas like Haganesica has this very pure admiration of the sword and just wants to like sort of, you know, he obviously he takes it too far. I guess Haganesica <laughs> takes everything too far, but it, it is born from this incredible care and dedication to the art of sword making. And he admires it so much that he wants to fix the sword. And I also think there's something there about like the sword is both a piece of art and it's a tool. It is a thing that is both beautiful, but it's also a thing that serves a purpose versus the art that Gyoko creates, which is just meaningless, right? It's, it is, you know, it, it feels like it's, it's sort of like a critique by Gotoge sensei of the kind of like very navel gazing modern art movement that you can have um, where it's just like, it's so pointless. It's become so abstract and so removed from anything else that it's like, you, you can get those artists that feel like they're playing the game of art rather than creating art. And that's so much what Gyoko feels like he is. He's such as an exaggeration of that. Um, and, and he's also doing it by like, obviously literally hurting people, which is the, the, in that world, the worst thing that he's doing, but it feels like it's there to represent his pursuit of art, which is also perverse. It is contrasted very directly with the art that the swordsmith village um, pursues. Absolutely. And I and I love that even a character like Haganezuka, who has been purely comic relief up until yes. this point, becomes and he is still very funny in this season, even when he has the poor guy has lost an eye and all this shit. Um, but he becomes part of the thematic tapestry of the show. And there's actually a really super touching moment when you realize that the reason he is so weird around Tanjiro and the reason he's chasing him up trees and rejecting him and all this stuff is that Tanjiro is the only one who puts up with him. Uh -huh. Everyone else has left Haganezuka because he is too intense. He is too into his shit. And, and everybody eventually gets fed up and goes and gets a different swordsmith. And Tanjiro would never do that. Tanjiro 
is so loving and understanding that he always thinks Haganezuka is mad at him when Haganezuka is really just mad at himself because he's sad he's been making swords that keep getting shipped and broken and all this stuff. Um, I don't think you can blame Haganezuka for the sword Tanjiro lost throwing at Akaza at the end of Mugen Train. That is a Tanjiro <laughs> fault. Uh, but yes, he's he's thing, feeling all of this. And so when he gets this moment of he has this ultimate Excalibur-style sword in front of him and he's going to make Tanjiro the best goddamn sword in sword history. He's going to do this amazing thing. He's going to polish this for three days and nights. Um, it's funny, and then it is also extraordinarily touching in that moment. Mm-hmm. It is like... Because he and Tanjiro actually share something very in common in that moment. Because Tanjiro also puts himself and his body to extremes purely for the idea of helping others and, and creating this thing together. And they're kind of made for each other. That's the only swordsmith Tanjiro could really have, right? Because that's the person who's most like him. Yes. And I do love that moment in the first couple episodes of this season where you it becomes very apparent of like, Oh, Haganezuka is a weird guy. Like, yes. because I think you see for a long time, he's the only swordsmith you've met. So you just assume, oh, they're all like this, right? They all must be these like weird hermits in the mountains or whatever that wear these Kyotoko masks and all this shit. And they're just like kind of, you know, all fetishize their swords and all this stuff. And then you get there and all the other swordsmiths are like, no, that dude's fucking crazy. Like, no, he is weird as shit. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course your sword got broken or chipped. You're fighting like weird demon monsters. Like, yeah, it's going, that's going to happen. Like, that's fine. That's why we're here is to make your swords and to fix swords for you guys. Yes. Um, it's totally normal and fine. And it probably is more of a sign that like the swordsmith maybe could have made a better sword for you. Like we take it as a matter of pride that we want to make a sword that's not going to break. And I just love how much it sort of puts Haganezuka in context early on in a way that's funny, but as you say, then sets up this much more kind of powerful moment of him being so dedicated to making that sword, um, and that sword being the thing that ultimately is what ties the Muichido story to the Tanjiro story, and then Tanjiro is able to cut off the head of the last demon, all of it is connected through that fundamental act which ties the whole story together and kind of brings it full circle in many ways. Absolutely. So I hope we have established so far in this conversation that actually Kimetsu no Yaiba has a lot on its mind. This is a very smart show. There's a lot of themes going on. And I want to transition that into, I want to talk about the action sequences and how cool they are and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But before we get there, I also just want to address the critique that I hear more and more from the Western fandom. I don't know if, I kind of doubt this is a thing in the Japanese fandom, but maybe there's weird contrarians there too. Um... Of that, oh, this show is just fighting. Last season was just one big fight. This season is just one big fight. It's so boring. Why does anyone care? Uh, and I have heard, I have heard that from various sections of the internet. That was the extent of Anime News Network's review of this season, for instance. If you want to go look at that, it's very weird. Um, but like, I have a couple of responses to that. First, this is a shonen battle show. If you don't like watching fighting, that's fine. It would be kind of like if you went to a musical and complained that there were too many songs. It's what the genre is, so maybe lay off on that. But more importantly, it annoys me when people look at something that is action-centric and assume it is therefore light on story, because that is not true. I actually just wrote last night a piece that is going up the same day this podcast is on my newsletter. It's the Weekly Stuff Wordcast. You can go find that at weeklystuff.substack.com. And I'm writing about all of the Indiana Jones movies because the new one is coming out at the end of this week. And I was writing about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And one of the things that has always annoyed me about modern criticism of Raiders is that you have your internet contrarians who just assume 
assume that because something is popular, it must be bad, and therefore they have to reverse engineer a reason to hate it. And the thing with Raiders is people have come up with this absolutely ridiculous critique that indie doesn't affect the plot, which is just factually wrong, but also mm. misses how much, although Raiders of the Lost Ark is a movie primarily built around action and kineticism and movement, there is a very active story and character arc going on in that movie that is very smart and very well written, and you can find all of that. And And I finally put this all to paper because I just am so frustrated by that brain-dead critique. And I think I could apply a lot of what I was saying there to Kimetsu no Yaiba. It is true that this, the previous season and this season, most of what is happening in the 11 episodes is action but that is not meaning that there is not story and character being conveyed through all of that. It is a shonen battle manga. That is its me- same as with a musical. If a musical was not communicating story through its music, it would be a bad musical. And if a shonen battle manga is not communicating story through its battles, it would be a bad shonen battle manga. And this is a very good one. And it is doing it very masterfully. And I think this season is a good example of that. Muichiro's character arc happens entirely within the realm of a big fight going on. And I find it very moving and smart and interesting. Um, what about you, Sean? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, obviously I agree. that, And I think it's, you know, it's true of so much like like the really best sort of action stories. It is about telling the story within the action and the characters expressing themselves through the action and things like that. That helps build out the whole narrative. Um, and it's something like I, I think about a lot with Kimetsu Yaiba in particular um, is the way that it, it builds its plots, I think, are so effective. And it's something that um, UFO Table in particular does incredibly well on how they, like, package them together. It's particularly, like, Mugen Train, I think, is where this really starts. Where you have, I don't think I talked about this on those podcasts, but you have the Japanese, um, for people who don't know, Japanese has a sort of the storytelling kind of structure that if you're Japanese, how you kind of break down stories is a term called Kisho Tenketsu, which is more or less the Japanese equivalent of our like introduction, rising action, climax, falling action, that kind of thing. Where like three act movie structures can map onto Kisho Tenketsu very clearly because you can analyze Mugen Train as being a three act structure. And it Mugen totally. Train is a extremely teachable three act structure. Yes. Yes. And Kisho Tenketsu is like the framing that a Japanese person would use in looking at an American movie rather than saying 3X structure. So it's that same basic concept. But there's some quirks to the Kisho Tenketsu structure that I think can sometimes lead it into doing things that I think are very interesting that are a bit different. And Kimetsu Yaiba is a good example of it. Basically what Kisho Tenketsu is, is it's a four-stage plot, the key, show, ten, and ketsu. Key is the opening. It like introduces all like the basic elements of the story, like the characters in the setting. Show is a continuation. It is something that continues all the major elements you just had in the key. Ten is the twist. That's where some sort of radical new element is introduced into the story um, that is probably like unexpected that creates a new element. And then Ketsu is the conclusion, although it's also the binding, I think of it as sometimes because the kanji is the character for like to tie or to tie a knot. Um, and that is where you combine all the narrative stuff that the key show section is introducing and the radical new element of the 10 into a climax that ties the whole story together. Most of the time, again, this is like not particularly different than what you think of as a three-act structure or rising action, climax, falling action. They map pretty clearly. But the 10 and Ketsu sections of Kisho Tenketsu can sometimes lead to slightly different stories like narrative structures or choices that you wouldn't normally expect because the 10 or the turn does not have to be something that's set up 
earlier in the story. It can be something that literally just comes out of nowhere. It's a totally radical element, unset up, unestablished earlier in the story. Um, and that's something that I think most Western narrative structures just aren't particularly comfortable with, introducing a totally unknown element deep into the story. Mugen Train is a perfect example of this because the key section is everything at the beginning of like all the dream stuff on the train, I would say, is all the key. It's setting up all the all the elements. Show is the direct continuation of that, which is them fighting the train demon and beating him, I would say is the end of the show section. And the 10 is Akaza showing up, right? That is this radical new element that is inserted into the story that changes everything. Um, and, and Akaza is not set up. He is not foreshadowed. You have never seen that character nor had that character intimated to you at all and before at all in Kimetsu no Yaiba. The only time he shows up immediately is just bam. Here is Akaza. And now all of a sudden, this is just a different story. And on first viewing, I think you would like are meant to go, what the fuck is happening? Who is this guy? And what the hell does he have to do with like the rest of the movie I was just watching? Because he just comes out of nowhere. And then the Ketsu of Mugen Train, to me, starts with Tanjiro's speech after Rengu has lost, where he yells, like, you gotta not, like, don't run away, you coward, don't run away. And that's where it becomes clear the thematic relationship between the Kisho, the train section, and then the Ten, Akaza, that both of them are about um, the demons who are sort of pursuing this sort of ideal, this dream life, or this life of Akaza of, like, being this immortal martial artist that he offers to Rengoku. Um, and Rengoku's rejection of that and Tanjiro's rejection of that philosophy ties together that the dream thing that that first demon was doing and the offer to become a demon that Akaza is giving and becoming immortal, those are fundamentally the same thing. That like the same philosophy underpins both of these villains and that comes together and sort of blossoms into the celebration of mortality, what it is to be human and passing something on rather than trying to keep your dreams or your life for yourself. Um, and that's the reason why the Ketsu, that conclusion in that structure can be really powerful because you're in this kind of very enigmatic, very kind of strange section of the story where you're not sure how it connects to everything that came before it until everything sort of ties together very beautifully in that final narrative section. Entertainment District Arc does the exact same thing. The key is them going to go investigate the Entertainment District. The show is um, fighting Daki. The 10 is Gutado shows up. And the Ketsu is basically everything at the end of the fight and then winning the fight in the flashback with Daki and Gutado. Because at first, how Gutado connects to all the stuff of all the time we spent in the Entertainment District is not clear. Like, how is he connected to the ideas of, like, the beauty of the Entertainment District and the Oidon Society and all that stuff? We spent a lot of time establishing... Daki is a very natural continuation of all of that work. Gutado feels like he comes kind of out of nowhere. And then you come to understand, oh, he is the darker reflection of it. Um, his relationship with um, Daki is one of where she is the sort of like the beautiful, visible part and the valued part of the Pleasure District. Gutado is the invisible and the worthless part, what people consider to be worthless. And both of those are a necessary part for the kind of corrupted and sort of decadent and gross society of the pleasure district that it creates both of these things and it destroys both of these kinds of people and uses them up and spits them out and it's also the same thing that Tengen is because he is also a ninja whose life was invisible and worthless and the reason he wants to be flashy is for people to think that his life and the life of his wives matters and he's another reflection of that and all of that becomes so apparent in the last episode of that season which is that Ketsu which ties all those things together and it gives you 
that rush of, I think, like powerful emotion where the whole tapestry of the narrative that has been mostly action, it's mostly been big fight scenes so far, the relevance and the interconnected and thematic nature of all of those things becomes tied to into a knot and becomes like very clear and um, powerful as an emotional experience for the viewer. And I would say Village Swordsmith arc, I think, is a little bit weaker because I think it's what it's doing is having two Kisho Tenketsus. Um, and, and the Tanjiro side is kind of very prolonged because it fits Muichiro's own story in there. But it is doing the same basic thing. Muichiro has a very clear Kisho Tenketsu. The key is all the, his introduction and him being a dick to Kotetsu. The show is him seeing Kotetsu on the way to going to the village and being attacked by the demon thing and him deciding to help him is a very clear continuation. The Ten is Muichiro being defeated by the demon and captured in the bubble, which is not what you expect. Muichiro is supposed to be so good. He's supposed to be able to win these kinds of fights. Um, and then and everything in the flashback is also that. Then the Ketsu is how that idea of that Tanjiro, that seed he planted in the Kisho section, that comes together to um, uh, Kotetsu breathing into the bubble and him being able to escape. And that's the Ketsu. That's just how these ideas of him, of all of his flashback and the life in which he has led and all these little things we saw in the Kisho come together. And that's your climax there. And then I would say for the Tanjiro story, it's very protracted. But I would say the key is all the stuff in the village, the show or the continuation is the first section of the fight with the demons, because all of that is set up by the first episode where you see the demons are heading to the village. And then I would say the 10 is when the demons combine together into the one demon who then accuses Tanjiro of being a villain. I think that's like the twist. That's the turn. That's the thing you don't expect. The demons have always been splitting up. Now they combine together and they're accusing our hero of being a monster and of being a villain and of bullying weak people. And you're like, how the fuck does all that tie together to all the stuff we've been talking about with the village, village swordsmith and all that? And then the Ketsu is Nezuko's decision to sacrifice herself and, and everything that happens there. And that makes it clear of this idea of like, the way in which that demon belittles himself and puts himself in a corner, it uses that as an excuse to hurt other people, is this dark reflection. Um, and his accusation of Tandra being a villain is this dark reflection of the lives that Tandra and Nezuko live, and he's this opposite example of them. And that this self-sacrifice and the selflessness of Nezuko is the like perfect solution to the gross, selfish, and like kind of accusatory life that this demon has lived and is the way that you can defeat him. And that crew that ties the whole tapestry together. And once again, in that finale, like the end of Mugen train, like the end of the entertainment district arc, I think you're like bowled over with the emotional and thematic richness of what has just happened because what has felt like a little bit disparate has now all come together into such a clear story. Um, and so the reason why I wanted to break all that down in the Kisho Tenketsu thing is because I think that is the genius of the Kimetsu no Yaiba storytelling structure. It, because most Japanese stuff doesn't take advantage, I think, of that potential of the Tenketsu thing, of how different and how kind of like off-putting it can be of where you're thrown into like a story where you're not sure how this connects and then having it sort of all dovetail together at the end is so powerful. Um, and it's something that Yufa Table, I think, really emphasizes in their adaptation and really puts a really fine point on. And that's where I think you see the genius of the writing and of the plotting and the character writing and the thematic work as how 
that those arcs all come together so perfectly and fit into that that structure so naturally and effectively and it is done through action all the major stages of the show in the 10 for all of these is always action it's always big fights in which those big twists are occurring um and that's you know that's just amazing storytelling to me and it's why i think kimetsu gaiba is so good is because these kinds of shonen battle shows do not have tight plot structures almost ever. They're so big, they're so kind of meandering because they're these big weekly series that have been published for 10 plus years, right? And they can, that can still be very good. That doesn't make them bad, but that means that they aren't tight and they're not very focused. And Kimetsu no Yaiba is so disciplined and focused in how it tells its story in using that structure. Because you can also use Kisho Tenketsu in... Like, each of the flashbacks are structured that way. The series as a whole is structured that way. Like, Mitsuru's whole um, flashback is a very clear Kisho Tenketsu structure. Like, it's so disciplined in how it approaches its writing in that way that that's why I think it's so good and why it is frustrating and feels incredibly dismissive for people to look at and say, oh, it's just action. Therefore, there's, like, no story going on. It's like, no, there is such a disciplined story going on here that's communicating so many ideas and so much heart and character and humanity but if you're just all you're doing is gawking at the big expensive animation that looks really cool and you're not thinking about it and engaging with it on a very earnest level the way that I think the average viewer is because I don't think the average viewer has that complaint. I think it's like the people who are like trying to be very smart and like sort of tackle it as a, in a reviewer mindset. If you're tackling it earnestly, I think it has that effect in spades and it's so effective for the audience clearly because it is like one of the most wildly popular manga anime series ever. Yes, no, I, I, I do, to be clear, I generally think this critique is a reverse-engineered, this thing isn't resonating with me, but it is popular, so I must be able to outsmart it, which I think is a thing you see sometimes on the internet. But no, that whole explanation is so good, Sean. And I think, like, this is crucial. Like, Ufo Table's animation and Gotoge-sensei's, you know, sort of imagination of the choreography of the action is extraordinary, and it's cool and all of that stuff. It wouldn't matter if it wasn't mm-hmm. telling a story. It just wouldn't matter, right? It's it's the same as, you know, the John Wick movies. The John Wick movies have incredible action. But the reason that action works is there actually are characters in a story going on that's interesting and compelling and drives all of that. Or to give another anime example, um, the Dragon Ball Z movies have mm-hmm. spectacular animation. Dragon Ball Z Movie 8, the Broly movie, is one of the best animated things you'll ever see. Just spectacularly done, and I think it's one of the most boring 80 minutes of film yeah. ever made. I do not care. Even though I can look at it and intellectually go, every animator on this brought their A-game and did phenomenal individual work. Uh, I don't think it really matters, because who gives a shit? There is definitely not a good Kisho Tenketsu going on in no. Broly, the legendary Super Saiyan. Um... But in Demon Slayer, there absolutely is. And I think this season is, you're right, I think there's the two sort of interlinking Kisho Tenketsus, and they are done uh, very well. Even if I think that is also a good critique of maybe how this season has a little less cumulative power than the last two major arcs. Uh, I think that is a good explanation for that as well. But yeah, all of the cool big action beats that we get here, when they hit hardest, it's not just because Ufo Table is bringing their A-game as animators. It's because they also understand the story and how to pace it and why it matters and why this moment deserves all the extra time and money and polish. Yeah, and yeah, and it's and some of it is that kind of like bigger picture storytelling stuff. And a lot of it is also like those smaller things of like little builds and releases of tension and like moments where 
it you know it becomes desperate for the heroes and then Conroji comes in and saves the day and like those like kind of little beats are always so well executed and paced out incredibly well um and you have like a very good interplay of all the different characters like here one of the things i just love so much about the action of this season is how much nezuko is able to do so i think you were talking about earlier it's like you kind of forget in the manga because you know because you don't have like the voice acting you don't have all the movement and stuff it was like easy to kind of forget oh yeah she's just a constant participant here there's no like in the entertainment district arc she gets her one big scene which is great you know, she fucking kicks through the stomach of Daki and you get to hear Miki <laughs> Swashiro give like the five second noise running through everything one would feel if their stomach had a hole kicked in it all of a sudden, which is just <laughs> one of my favorite like gasps in the history of anime. It's so good. It's just this like real range of emotions that that character goes through. Um, and it's really cool in that season. And it's the smart way that they're kind of building up her character. But you get that one big scene with her and then she's gone until the end where you get adorable little baby Nezuko running around with Tanjiro on her shoulders, which is fucking great um but here she's just kicking ass the whole time and what i love is that she's never um that's never like that she's never undermined in that right she's never sort of tempted to go attack any of the humans or anything like it's where you feel the build-up to her being able to stand in the light is how much she has begun to rebuild her self in her self-control and that she's just for this whole fight she is just another one of the demon slayers and there's no like if ands or buts about it which is what makes it appropriate when she's able to kick him off is because it's like no like would you be doing this if it was inosuke would you be doing this if it was zenitsu no you would trust them to find some way to survive and you would do your mission as a demon slayer it feels like that's what Nezuko's communicating. She's part of the team as well. She's been a part of the team the whole time. She was a part of the team in the fucking Mugen train fights, which is what Rengoku tells Tanjiro at the end of that movie. She's a part of the team in the entertainment district. She just needs to be pulled back a little bit. She's part of the team here. She doesn't need special treatment. And I love how much all of that, that's all action because Nezuko doesn't have any dialogue. She just goes, hmm. And, you know, Kito Akari is the best actress in the world at making mumbling noises. And, you know, I'm so happy for her that the muzzle finally gets taken off and she gets to say some actual lines of dialogue again. It's like, she's so good. Um, But, like, all of that stuff with Nezuko is purely through action because she's a character that can only commit action. She can't have any dialogue. Yes. And uh, here's another character who is communicated to us through action this season, who we forgot to talk about earlier, and I'm sure someone was screaming at the podcast, and that is Genya, who is the other major character here. And I can't believe we forgot to talk about him, because honestly, Genya is one who um, I love in the manga, but primarily for some things that happen later. I think he read much stronger to be in the anime for this section. Mm -hmm. And part of that is I just think the actor, Nobuhiko Okamoto, one of the many cases of someone they cast years ago for that one scene in season one, just trusting, hey, eventually you're going to have big scenes. He brings a fucking A-game to this. I think his his performance as this, you know, foul-mouthed asshole, kind of with a heart of gold, uh, is just fantastic. And this is a character who, you know, really just seems like a total dickhead. And you're very... I think Tanjiro is confused why he's a demon slayer. We're confused. Like, mm-hmm. what is this dude doing? And then when you see what he's up to, A, he is such a fascinating combatant because he is a dude carrying around this sawed-off fucking shotgun shotgun with Nichirin sword shells in it. Yes. And he can regenerate and all this stuff. Uh, it's incredible. And actually something interesting the anime does is... There is more exposition of what Genya's deal is in the manga because the manga has 
a neutral narrator for a lot of it that is not mm-hmm. brought into the anime. The anime does the narration for everyone else. So when Tanjiro is thinking or Muichiro is thinking, we hear their thoughts. But the anime has always uh, not adapted the third-party narrator. And so the third-party narrator will tell you, like, hey, these are, you know, Nichirin shells in his gun and some of that stuff. And I think mm-hmm. some of the details about him eating demons, I think there's more of in this section that I presume we're just going to get in the anime later. But... Uh, I think just because of how cool he is in the action sequences, and you just put it together, like, oh, that mm-hmm. must be what his bullets are, and this must be what he is doing to have this crazy regenerative power. Uh, he's a perfect character for an arc like this, and it's really cool to see him in action here. Yeah, it's it's very fun, and, and like you, I felt like he read stronger here, like, because most of the stuff, I mean, I remembered him, like, being introduced here and him fighting this section but most of the stuff i remember for ginya is on the the final section because you get um that's when you also get the stone hashira and all that stuff that the ginya has a relationship with the, the wind um, hashira is his brother and then yes but, but yeah yes but then you have the uh tomikaze seki character who is the hashira that ginya works under right because he's got right. the namida ami the buddhist prayer and all that stuff yes. connects to that character so it's like you get a lot more stuff with ginya later on that's the main stuff i remembered um but yeah he's really good here and yeah there's you know he fits really well under the overall like thematic thrust of this season where he is you know a counterpoint to all the other characters where if we have a couple of prodigies um in Muichiro and Kanroji and someone who is maybe we wouldn't call a prodigy but is like exceptionally skilled in Tanjiro Guinea is like should be a scrub right he's like a dude he tells you in in one of his like flashbacks or whatever he can't use breath techniques like he just can't do it like it's like for whatever reason no matter how hard he tries he just can't do that but he still wants to fight demons because you know a dude with that face probably isn't going to be like you know doesn't look like he wants to be a swordsman that guy wants looks like he wants to fuck shit up um and so he the way he goes about that is he has just a totally different fighting style he has this thing we'll learn more about of him eating demons and being able to like get some of their powers that way um, and then he also has his uh, sawn-off double-barreled shotgun, um, like a badass motherfucker, and he just goes and he fucks up demons. Um, and it's a cool way to show that it's a much bigger world, right? That like you can you can play a role here as a frontline combatant even without having like all the magic. You know, it's not actually magic, but the the pseudo magical sword shit that other characters are able to do. He can't do that. He can still hold his own in a fight. He just has to go about it through other means. Um, and I think that all ties together very well. And then I just love his relationship with Tantro. Right. I love it in this with Tantro. Um, it, it's fun having, he is, um, you know, speaks totally informally with Ginya because Ginya is just like to him. It's like the equivalent in like Japanese would be like a classmate. And that's like, he's, he just speaks to him so informally, just wants to be buddies. Um, and then I like he, um, with uh, Muichiro, Tantro calls him Tomiyoki-kun. Um, he uses that. So it's like, he's a little bit more formal but because Muichiro is so young, he's basically the same age as Tanjiro. He he's like not using honorifics in the same way he is with Kanroji. Um, and there's just something about the relationships there between all these characters of different ages and stations. I just like the way that Tanjiro responds to them differently. But especially with Ginya, Tanjiro just wants to be fucking buddies. Like, come on, man. Like, we can be pals or whatever. Like, we, you know, even though, yeah, I broke my, your arm when I first met you when you, like, almost, like, killed this little girl. Um, but, you know, it's like, let's water <laughs> under the bridge now. We could just be friends. Um, and Ginya's like, what is with this fucking lunatic? There's that scene where they're in the, like, they're staying in the 
same like house together and there's that scene where they're eating dinner and Tanjiro is just it's funny because it starts off as exposition Tanjiro is explaining things and we think it's just maybe narration and then we cut into the scene and he's talking to Genya like hey Genya hey buddy I want to tell you about my day and he's going on and Genya is like just sitting there like when is he gonna shut up this fucking annoying kid it's great and I think going back to what you were talking about with like Genya is is such a fascinating character because he he is in other versions of this story he would be the underachiever he would be another one of those guys at the butterfly mansion who is taking care of Tanjiro and bringing in the cake every day mm-hmm. right um, who has just accepted like hey I don't have extraordinary powers but I can help out in other ways and that's great everybody contributes right but Genya's like no I'm gonna go fight the demons even if I can't do this so let me get my sawed off shotgun and let me start eating demons right it makes me uh, it's a counterpoint it made me think of Another way the Harry Potter stories are so fundamentally uncreative is that this Mm -hmm. is a mechanic in the world of Harry Potter as well, that some people are born as witches and wizards but don't have the ability to do magic, and they're called squibs. And all of the squibs we meet in the life of Harry Potter are pathetic, awful characters who literally not only don't contribute things but are like fundamentally bad people like uh filch who is the care like the the custodian at hogwarts who tortures kids he's a squib we learn and that is why he is such an asshole is that he can't do magic and so he's a bad person and now i'm thinking how cool would it be in harry potter if one of the main characters was a squib who found some other interesting way to like harness magic and help the characters out and that's kind of who genya is and like yeah. that's interesting. It's an interesting thing. Harry Potter would never do that because it's written by an uncreative bigot. But this is uh, creative and good. Yeah, it's just like, I, you know, we've all wish we had that scene in Harry Potter where, you know, the guy just walks up and is like, oh, you think wands are cool? Check this shit out. And he just pulls out a fucking Glock and shoots Voldemort in the face. It's like, guess what? You know, the human world has come up with some pretty magical bullshit, dude. Like, <laughs> you met my friend, he's nine millimeter. Bam. Yeah, they never did answer that question why no one in Harry Potter thought, why don't we just like fly over to Texas and get ourselves a gun? Uh, I don't think Voldemort can stop bullets. I think we're good. Yeah, you don't you don't even need magical Nichirinto bullets or whatever to put no. Voldemort down. Just get a fucking shotgun and there you go. I'm sad there's not a scene in this season of Kimetsu where we see whatever poor swordsmith has to make those bullets for Genya. <laughs> and like this is like, you want me to make what? <laughs> Because I assume yeah, he's the only Demon Slayer who's ever asked for this. Yeah, you know, he's very lucky it's not Haganezica. This like Haganezica yes. would have a fucking conniption every single time one of those shells was fired. It's like you got you gotta be fucking kidding me. Did you miss? You fucking missed? Yo, you 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 bastard. But I love how Hantengu who is the main one he's fighting here is always like so fucked like he expects to be slashed with a sword but when he gets his head blown off with one of those bullets it's like oh yes. my god this sucks <laughs> it's great yeah, this is also where you get some of the you know gore in Kimatsu no Yaiba uh, it's just like man you know Ginya just really fucks shit up and just blow, yeah. he's blowing heads off blowing arms off he gets there's that one point where he just gets turned into fucking Swiss cheese which I had forgotten is in this section of the story it's like fucking hell dude Ginya that you know I get that you can reject but that's got to hurt like a motherfucker. Yeah, no, I mean, I I will say the manga is a manga that gets bloodier as it goes along. Yes. And I'm always kind of wondering, especially when, when if they're in a movie, I, I don't think this would be a problem. But on TV, I always wonder if Ufo Table is going to be able to go quite as far as the manga asks to go. And they always do it uh, so yeah. far. Uh, I don't think anyone's stopping them. They did Tanjiro getting impaled through the jaw in last season. They did all the stuff here. 
Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so what did you think of, you know, in general, just we've talked a lot in the past about UFO Table's amazing production. And what did you think here with Swordsmith Village and, and all the animated craziness we get? I mean, it's obvious, it's as good as ever. Um, you know, there's so many incredible moments that they pull off with aplomb. We've already talked about there's the big section where... Tanjiro gets the exploding blood sword with Nezuko, yes. which is just a fucking all-time great badass moment in a fight. Um, and, he, and you have like that the two-page spread that they do of where he cuts off all their heads with that Hinokami Kagura move. Um, all their stuff with Kanoriji, I think they just absolutely nail. Um, the way that yes. they imagine, the way that she fights, I think is so cool. Um, and it does kind of recall, since, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we uh, watched through all of Kata no Kyokai, it reminds me a little bit of the kind of very lithe and kind of balletic way um, that you have um, Shiki fight in that series. Um, and obviously, uh, Kanraji has her giant whip sword, but it's still like the movement and the weight of the character and the way that she moves through the world has that kind of very dance-like quality to it, um, which is the thing I like about Kanraji's character, right, is that she... It's the thing that's special about her, like, muscles in her body or whatever, is that she both has, like, incredible strength, but because it comes from the density of her muscles, which obviously this is fucking impossible, but it will, <laughs> yes, yeah, we'll accept it. From the density of her muscles, it allows her to exert incredible strength while having a very sort of compact body. So, right, you're, you're someone that's built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, you can lift really heavy shit, but the movement of your body is restricted by the literal mass of your muscles and how big they are. Um, and so I think that's just like a cool concept. And then the way that they animate her sword is awesome. Um, all the stuff with Muichiro's mist in terms of their 3D effects is really good. And you get a great moment where you're reminded once again, none of that is real. It's not actually happening. It's just artistic license. He's not actually creating mist because there is the moment where Gyoko, um, the demon, is like, He's, it's the move where uh, Michiro creates like a field of mist, quote unquote, a field of mist, and it keeps on seemingly disappearing in it. And Gyoko very specifically says, it is almost as if I was covered in a field of mist. <laughs> uh, it, it's not that he literally is. It is almost as if it were like that. And I just love um, Kimetsu Yaiba's dedication to it's not actually magical sword stuff. There, It's just, it's almost like it was magical sword stuff, and it's very good. But all the like, particle effect stuff they do there that's like very classic um ufo table 3d stuff and it just looks really good oh yeah i mean it's, it's you know Kanroji, as we've talked about that's just a character they were born to animate like to the point that you almost wonder gotoge's right in the manga like i hope ufo table gets this because <laughs> like who else would have been able to do that character right like mm -hmm. what other studio has that specific skill set that is like as you say it goes all the way back to 2007 the first car no kyokai because i was thinking about that too shiki's fight on the roof in the first car no kyokai mm -hmm. absolutely feels like a blueprint for a lot of what Kanroji is doing here and it is amazing uh a, a a side effect of, of the, the the demons that we have in this season is that we do have quite a few more all CG elements on screen. We have more 3D characters. I think for, for Hantengu, you have all the big wooden snakes that are coming up. Mm -hmm. I think those look great. And, and all of that stuff is fantastic. And the way they are able to put those into a world that is still basically a 2D anime world and your characters are still 2D anime characters, but then they are able to move three-dimensionally around them. It is an incredible bit of sort of synthesis of ways of envisioning animation. And that is, you know, that's just UFO Table at their best. I think some of the stuff with Gyoko and he has all the like weird like fish things he the makes fish, and all yeah. of his pots. Some of those, I think... 
it's very much a I think it is intentional that they look mm-hmm. uncanny and a little yes. rough. But I, I don't know. Once in a while, I thought maybe like they were leaning on them a bit too much. Uh, just some of that is just it's like it's a noticeably like kind of messier kind of animation than UFO table usually goes for. But I also understand how that is kind of the point is that they're supposed to look uncanny and wrong. So I kind of vacillated on that. Yeah. I, I ultimately, I think like it took me a little bit to get used to, but I ultimately liked the direction they went with his weird fish monsters because they are so ridiculous. Um, and Kyoko yeah. is such like, he's by far the silliest of all of the demons, right? Like so much so that he doesn't even like get a big full proper flashback. And he's like, he's, he's almost like he borders on being a joke character up until he then starts doing shit. That is also like very like a gross and inhuman, like his giant Hannibal-esque serial killer body art thing. Yes. Um, but yeah, there's something about the like very strange fish monsters because they don't actually look scary but there's something about like representing them in this sort of impossible 3d where they're very intentionally not done to integrate into the rest of the animation style the way that the wooden dragons are the way that the obi is in uh entertainment district art it reminds me a little bit more of kind of stylistically what they went for in mugen train with the weird fleshy train stuff where sometimes that was felt like oh they are trying to make this feel organic and it's like it of it's like of a different world um it's something that you could like reach out and touch almost more than this sort of abstract 2d imagery which is what most of their other stuff is um i think there's something particularly of having that contracted contrasted very directly in this one season where you have the wooden dragon stuff which looks fucking flawless and integrates perfectly and then you have the fish which are like very jarring and very bizarre looking and for me like yeah, it's it's a little weird, but I ultimately kind of liked that they went in that direction. But either way, it's like whether you like it or not, it's clearly an intentional choice to, oh. to design them like that. Yeah, Ufo, if Ufo Table wanted them to look uh, photorealistic, they have the time and resources mm-hmm. at this point, right? Again, their movie release of episode one made $60 million. They're good. Yeah. Uh, that is not the, this is not like the Full Metal Alchemist movies where they're like, oh God, we can only animate Al for five minutes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. that, is, that is not what's going on in Demon Slayer. No, I think it works. I think in terms of like, my favorite animation, though, some of it isn't even in the set pieces. Like, I think the Mu and Muichiro episode, his his flashback and story and everything, just like all the just basic image composition of, of his flashback material, the just beauty of the backgrounds where it feels a little heightened. This, this is memory. This is his vision of, like, this mm-hmm. idyllic time. All the stuff that happens with him and his brother. There's just, that's one where it's like, you remember it's not just that they have a lot of you know animation technique and and resources at their availability it's just the basics of storyboarding and composition and all of that stuff is also so beautiful and i think that's true in the final episode as well yes. where there's some of the most impressive 3d stuff this season isn't anything to do with a fight it's just the big camera moves around that mm-hmm. field in the finale that like is just it, it fully just feels like they they somehow brought a camera into a 2d animated world and moved around in it it's inc- it's one of the most impressive uses of 3d technology i've seen in one of ufo tables productions which is saying something yeah, I think that is my favorite piece of animation in the season is all the stuff in the finale in the field with Nezuko. Um, and just like, and it's all that stuff. Like it's her 
kicking him off in like the slow motion stuff with the big flashback showing all their like what brought them up to this point which is like an interesting choice because i feel like ufo table doesn't do those kinds of long flashback sequences that way that's something i associate more with like a naruto um where there it's partially a production thing or like you know, for stuff we've covered, Gundam Seed, obviously Fukuda, the director of that show, just loves his fucking using his flashbacks over and over again. But it's something that I think really effectively puts a point on, look at how much Nezuko has grown, because I think it's easy to forget because she's never a focused character. She's just always kind of like there with them, but she has changed so much and evolved so much over the season that I felt like that was a really strong choice to like bring that together. And that's all intercut with this like really beautiful slow-mo animation which again, slow, all slow-mo animation is, is you just got to draw a lot of fucking drawings. It's the same thing as doing slow-mo <laughs> live action. You got to just take a lot of fucking pictures. So whenever it's slow-mo, you know, it's like, man, you just got to really, you just got to draw a lot of images of Tanjiro very, very slowly spinning through the air. And Nezuko very slowly, like, rotating back. And then her hand, like, the amount of time they spend on her hand coming across her body and then slowly making a fist which is such a powerful image and how long they linger on that movement and everything to do with that. And then, then when it comes back to her being there in the camera spinning around Nezuko as she's in the field in the sunlight, like all the animation in, in that location, like that stuff is the best work they did this season, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's the key moment of the season. And I think it is one of the definitive Ufo table improving on the manga moments mm-hmm. in the history of this show, where as great as the manga is, I do think like, that moment hit me so much hard. I know what's coming, but it just mm-hmm. hit me so much harder in the anime where I don't think the manga pauses and lingers in the same way to make you feel what Tanjiro is going through, where he is staring down the barrel of his reason for living dying, right? Yeah. And Nezuko is also making an active choice in letting herself go, possibly, right? And that relationship. And instead, like, it's a big chunk of time that they spend doing some flashback material, that beautiful slow-mo animation. Put a pin in the music. We'll come back to that because it's all stupendous this season. Um, And it just, it means that by the time Tanjiro lands and goes after the demon, you have fully lived in that emotional state for a little bit of... Tanjiro is uh, is maybe going to lose everything here and that is so horrible to contemplate even if you like Sean and I know that Nezuko is going to be fine because we've read the manga mm-hmm. um it just it's beautiful and then it makes the moment where we turn around and she is fine all the more powerful you know um and goddamn Hanai Natsuki throughout all of that as well just I feel like we've, we take him for granted now because he's Tanjiro when you talk about him. Goddamn, in the final episode of this season, Hanai Natsuki just brings it uh, and makes you want to cry. It's crazy. But yeah, all of that, I think, is, is a moment where the manga is a little more breathless in that chapter of just the relentless, like, we're falling off the cliff. Now there's the sun. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. And, and all of that. And I think they chose to slow it down here. And it's beautiful. Yeah, because I think one thing it makes you really feel is, like, how horrible it is for Tanjiro to, like, let go of Nezuko there. I mean, he doesn't let go of her. She kicks him away. But obviously he could, once he landed, he could just say, no, fuck that shit, and I just, like, run back over and try to cover right. Nezuko again. He, but he, like, sort of takes on what she is telling him to do there through her actions and continues going. So it's like he is having to ultimately make that choice to accept that and let her go. But I think, like, slowing down that moment makes you feel how much it's, like, 
It's horrible, but it's the thing he has to do because the goal isn't saving Nezuko. Not really. The goal is stopping Kibutsuzi Muzan and preventing these kinds of things from happening to other people, right? Because we have at this point seen so many lives that have been ruined by the demons. And you get like two more in this season with Muichiro and Genya, and you see how like horrible it is and, and how the like the nature of these things have taken so much from so many people that that's in reality that has to be what Tanjiro's real goal is and if all it was was oh Nezuko now can survive in the sunlight and we'll be able to make her human at some point it's okay um and it just went that way and Tanjiro didn't have to kind of let her go and think that she's going to die like I think that that would really loosen lessen the impact of part of Tanjiro's journey Tanjiro's journey has been going from someone who his only real goal is to figure out what's going on with Nezuko and fix her. And then when he meets Kibutsuji Muzan, he gets this additional goal of, um, now I want to kill him too. Like, I need to stop him. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think they introduced Muzan so early, or Gotoge, since they introduced him so early, is to give this other thing, this secondary objective that Tanjiro is also working towards, just because the objective of saving Nezuko is something he can't on his own really do or make progress towards, um, you know, like all the Tamiyo stuff, it's kind of happening off screen for most of the series. So, but here you have to really kind of bring it all the way home and say, at this point, Tanjiro has to accept it's not about Nezuko. It can't be about Nezuko. That that is in its own way, a form of selfishness, like what the demons express. It's like the one thing that Tanjiro still has that kind of holds him back. It's like the one shred of like similarity he has with Gutado from the previous season is this sort of ownership over his sister. And obviously there's nothing wrong about that. It's like totally natural for him to love Nezuko and want to protect her. But at the same time, in so doing, he's holding himself back from doing something bigger and he's also holding her back. And that's why she has to kick him off. Um, and so there's something very powerful about him having to really accept that, him having to realize this is like the bigger thing I have to do is help these people. It can't just be about my sister. That's not right. Um, and then because he's, again, it's one of those things where because he has made that choice, that is also the thing that feels like that is what allows Nezuko to survive in a spiritual sense. That like he is able to accept that. He is able to move forward. She is able to make this self-sacrifice. And that's the thing that allows them to change and sort of break the sort of legacy of everything that has happened with demons up till that point. And, and yeah, I think, and this is just where you again see nobody is a better sort of interpreter of this manga than the people at UFO table, because they understand mm-hmm. all of this and they put these resources towards, okay, they understand in the, in the totality of this story, this is a turning point in so many ways, not just a brief bit of schmuck bait of will Nezuko die, right? It's not yeah. a dumb cliffhanger. It is a real turning point for these two characters. Uh, and they make it into that as fully and, whole- and fulsomely as they can in their anime adaptation. And a big part of that is the music. So let's unkin yeah. that. Because I have to say this season, Sean, the single thing in UFO Table's production that impressed me most this season specifically was the music. Yuki Kajiura and Goshina. I think this the score for this season, it is 11 episodes, kind of 13 episodes mm-hmm. of music 
that just sounds like a movie soundtrack. Just yeah. full on. There is nothing where you go, ah, oh, they're reusing music here, blah, blah, blah. It is all so bespoke. It is all seemingly live, you know, recordings. It is gorgeous. It is building on all of the themes that they have built up over season one in Mugen Train and Entertainment District Arc, and it's introducing new stuff. And it's just, it is on fire every second of this thing and all of the moments i've talked about as being my favorites like the the big when he gets the red sword and does the big slash that is a all-time great music moment of kimetsu all the stuff with muichiro who gets his own kind of set of themes is beautiful and then of course the ending here we get kamado nezuko's song which is a counterpoint to kamado tanjiro's song which is tanjiro's big theme we get a version for nezuko is it the actress who plays nezuko singing that or is it someone else okay um, I wasn't sure. Um, yes, because mostly uh, I've heard her going. Here it's a singer named Nami Nakagawa. Okay, yeah, but it is gorgeous. Which I think is... I think that's the same singer that did the Tanjiro song from episode. That 18, is correct. That then yes. turned into his theme. Yeah, so it is this great like big payoff to like fully in the soundtrack also separate her off and let her be her own character. And you know, overall, just top to bottom. I, Yuki Kajira and Goshina are goddamn superheroes. They are the Muichiro of this world. They can do anything. Uh, and this soundtrack is something else, man. Yeah, the soundtrack is phenomenal. Yeah, and particularly that moment where Nezuko gets her theme. And it's like a very intentional callback to episode 19 from season one where Tanjiro gets his song. And then that became from that point forward in Mugen Train and the later seasons that his, his theme or variations of that become his theme song. And yeah, there's something very powerful about musically that comes together with her actualizing herself as a person again. Um, it's so good. And then, of course, you also have um, the opening and ending themes here, which are phenomenal this season. We have new people here. We're not with the UFO table or Kajiro Yuki uh, regulars. Uh, we have Man with a Mission, who we know very well from Raise Your Flag, uh, the first opening to Iron-Blooded Orphans. And then we have Mide, who I don't think we've covered a show that has used her, but she's uh, gotten pretty big in the last few years doing a lot of anime openings and endings as well as obviously her own albums and stuff. The big thing I know Mide from is she is, um, that's it's pronounced Mide, but it's written M-I-L-E-T. If people are confused, it's meant to be pronounced Mide. Um, it's kind of like Aime in that way. Um, but she did uh, the two ending themes, Prover and Tell Me from the Fate Grand Order Babylonia anime. And both those songs are fucking incredible, particularly Prover is amazing. Um, and so it's kind of a duet in a way uh both of them are kind of duets of man with a mission and mire the first the opening being kizuna no kiseki which i believe man with a mission wrote that song and then koi kogade is a has both of those singing but that is a kajuyuki song and you can tell because if it had only female vocals instead of also male vocals it would just be um uh, a song from like uh uh god what's the band um uh, oh, Calafina, Calafina, yeah, 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 it would just be a Calafina song if it didn't have a male vocalist in there. It is so funny how much it is just a Calafina song, and I love it. Uh, but yeah, the opening and ending themes have always been great. They are fucking great here as well. Yeah, no, I I cannot. I could do a whole podcast talking about Kizuna no, Kizuna no Kiseki. So it, the, they had this in the theatrical event to the mm-hmm. Swordsmith Village. They had it the same as it is in broadcast, where the theme song plays at the end of episode one. And so I heard it there, but they hadn't put the single out yet. They didn't put the single oh. out until the show premiered on April 9th. So for that month, between May, March 3rd and April 9th, 
I had this song stuck in my head that I could not, the only way you could find it is people had uploaded on YouTube basically recordings from in the movie theater uh, of the song. And I was listening to it because I love, this is my favorite Kimetsu opening. It's one of my favorite anime openings ever. It's just a phenomenal song. And I'm a pretty big man with a mission fan. After Raise Your Flag, I've actually listened to a bunch of their other albums and stuff. Did you know they did a whole cover of ACDC's Thunderstruck, Sean? No, okay, I need to. Okay, go find that. that. Man with a Mission doing Thunderstruck. They are great. I love that band. And this is like, it's such a phenomenal song. It's probably my favorite song by them. I think Mirei doing the other half of the vocals is really incredible too. Just their duet. They did this on the first take, the YouTube uh, show mm-hmm. where people do their songs, often acoustically. Uh, Man with a Mission, I don't think, swings that way. So it is not done acoustically for them. But it is still a really cool live performance of the song. Uh, I have listened to this song a ludicrous amount of times at this point and i feel like i get more hyped by it each time it is just like the ultimate fucking anime hype song i love it so much basically the main chorus especially but god the guitar part the opening that's kind of like a a samisen part or something all of it is just incredible i love it I particularly like the the opening, which is a shamisen with um, backing by shakuhachi, which is like the traditional Japanese flute, and then that transitions yes. into the rock thing, and it just it's so good. Um, I love it because also in the the animation, it starts with like kind of black and white, gr- grainy looking animation of forging, and then it slowly turns into color as the modern instrumentation comes in, which is fucking great. Um, yeah, it's it's a fucking banger of a song i particularly also uh i really love mire as a singer i've always found her very interesting because she i believe that she like did um study abroad in canada or something because she's got very naturalistic english pronunciation she has a lot of english lyrics in her songs that she wrote um and she's got a very like i feel like is a much more western style to her voice and her singing that's like a lot more like it sounds like adele or that kind of tradition of sort of like modern western pop singing um and it's just such a different style than j-pop which you think you associate more with like kind of that very bright sound that lisa's kind of like the kind of poster child for um mia just has a very different style and it's cool um having her sing opposite with man with the mission uh it's just like a very good combo um, and then yes. having them come back for the the ending theme is really good as well. But yeah, it's a... the ending is more her. They're doing more mm-hmm. of the backing, and she's more of the lead. I like how they kind of flipped it. So the opening yes. is a little more man with the mission. The ending is a little more mire. And you're right. I mean, you can tell how good a singer she is because her vocals are frankly better in the first take version yes. than on the studio track because she's just going for it live in the moment and she is just such an incredible talent yeah and i was not familiar with her before this because i have not seen some of the anime she's done um but yeah now i want to listen to a bunch of her stuff so this this is why big artists do anime themes they get a lot of streams after it yeah she's done a couple of other first take videos that are worth watching because yeah because she's one of those she's just such a talented singer on her own uh kind of like lisa where getting it like pretty unfiltered um rather than having like the big studio release that's been like you know produced to death um like there's just something about getting it really raw that sounds so fucking good i do also if people have not seen that first take video for kizuna no kiseki they really should and man with mission did one for raise your flag as well um 
that it's because it's very funny because people don't know man with a mission has a whole gimmick where they have like the wolf masks or whatever yep. um and like they the first take people have to shoot around that so that they don't show the faces of the people singing because obviously they're not having their faces obstructed by a big wolf mask i don't know how the drummer sees because he's got a full wolf mask on so they're just able to like shoot him whatever hour they want with the camera i have no idea how that dude sees the drums because that there doesn't look like anywhere in that mask to look through um uh, it's great. It's also their DJ is the same way, and it's there's, yep. there's this great moment where they're I don't know if you would call him the DJ, but he's the person running the like uh, all the synths and everything that they're playing. Yeah. And and there's one moment in the music video for first take where he like as they're building up to the chorus, he just jumps in the air and comes back down to like yes. touch the vinyl again. Oh god, it's so cool. And yes, it is very funny to see how they have to shoot around the wolf masks. Uh, it's great. And of course, Mire is just this normal Japanese woman. Yes. <laughs> And everyone else has a wolf mask. I love it. Yeah, it's very good. I don't know, Jonathan, have you ever uh, read the, the or looked at the Wikipedia page for Man with a Mission? I've, I, I think so. I don't know. So do you, I'm going to read for you, Jonathan. This is just one paragraph. This is the background section of Wikipedia because they have lore. Uh, Man with a Mission has okay. lore. So I'm just going to read this out for everyone's benefit because I just fucking love this. Before becoming popular, the band invented a backstory for why they wear wolf masks, which involves them being created as the, quote, ultimate life form by Jimi Hendrix, who's described by the band as being the doctor of the guitar and master wolf biologist. They were then frozen in Antarctica for years. While they were frozen, they had been listening to all kinds of music from all around the world before later escaping and emerging on the Japanese music scene. How is this not an anime? How is yes. this not a long, either a movie and it's a big musical, Man with a Mission does all the music, or fucking give me a full multi-season TV show like about them coming out of the ice and you're going to have flashbacks to them learning their craft, their wolves. Oh, God, just it'd be so cool. Yeah, and I, I'm just so obsessed with the question of what... What is a master wolf biologist? Are there biologists <laughs> that just only study wolf shit? <laughs> it's like, I'm, okay. a ma- I'm not a master biologist. I'm a master wolf biologist. Quick, Sean, which legendary Japanese voice actor do you cast as Jimi Hendrix in The Man with the Mission anime? Oh, my God. Um, my mind immediately went to Shinichiro Miki. That's, that's, <laughs> where, that's where I'm going. I, just want, I want the world's coolest sounding Japanese Jimi Hendrix. I love it. Also, if you don't know the names of the people in the band, they are Tokyo Tanaka, Jean Ken Johnny, Kamikaze Boy, DJ Santa Monica, and Spear Rib. Not Spare Rib, Spear Rib. Yes. What a band. I love these guys. Yeah, Man With Mission is a top-tier band. Um, it's yes. very good. Yes. Um, and, and it was opening... cool because UFO Table tends to kind of work with the same set of musicians for a lot of mm-hmm. their openings and endings. And it was cool to have two new... Because I don't think they've worked with UFO Table before, right? No. Yeah, yeah. they've never done UFO Table. also looked up because I was curious if, like, Mide had done any Sword Art Online or something, which would have also been Kajuya Yuki. But no, like, this is, as far as I yeah. can tell, this is the first time they've worked with either UFO Table or Kajuya. Yeah. Because I assume we will definitely get Lisa and Aimee back at some point for later Demon Slayer stuff. But I like that in this middle period, we're, we're expanding the, the range because it's very cool. And also, I did realize yesterday going through it, the first take has videos of all the Demon Slayer openings, even mm-hmm. Akaboshi, the one for the Mugen Train TV version, which is really cool. Because all of Lisa's are just solo, her and piano. And Akaboshi is her with Yuki Kajiura on piano. So if yes. you want to see Yuki Kajiura playing the piano, uh, you get to see that there. And it's very cool. Yes, um, you know, Demon Slayer just has, I mean, UFO Table in general just has, like, a very strong tradition of really great opening and ending themes, and it continues here. Um, it's, yeah, just uh, great across this whole show. Um, yeah. 
what else to talk about here? I think feel like we're kind of wrapping up. Uh, one thing I wanted oh. to shout out, this is something I, I wanted to make sure I didn't forget, because this is a thing that just kind of blew my mind. This is probably the most I have ever seen a character get elevated by who was cast to play them. And that's Muichiro's father in the flashback is voiced by Sugiyama Noriaki, Imiyashiro from Face Day Night, Sasuke from Naruto. Yes. This is a character I didn't even remember existed in the manga. Like, I thought I had totally misremembered what Michio's story was. Because when the whole thing starts happening and Michio is, like, hallucinating Tanjiro saying things to him, he's like, but you never said that to me, Tanjiro. I thought it was going to be, oh, that's his brother. Because I remember the twin brother thing. And then it's this other guy, and it's it's Sugiyama Noriaki's voice, just, like, it sounds unbelievably cool. Muichiro's dad is the coolest person in fucking... The two yes. coolest people in all of Kimetsu Yaiba are Muichiro's dad and Tanjiro's dad, because Tanjiro's dad is voiced by Shinichiro Miki. Um, and so it's like, these two really cool dad dudes, but this Muichiro's dad is so cool. It's like, did I just totally f- misremember what Muichiro's story was? And I thought I got it mixed up with Ginya's, because Ginya's has this whole thing with his brothers. like, maybe the whole thing was Muichiro was with his dad, and his dad got killed, and that's why he became... A demon slayer i don't remember that and then it's like no it is the brother it's just the dad is a bit character in that kind of scene he doesn't even have a name he's just credited as tokito's dad um and i just thought it was fucking ridiculous it's like they got such a good voice actor and Sugiyo just gives the coolest sounding performance like i want a whole show that is just about muichiro's hot dad voiced by Sugiyama noriaki <laughs> Like, that's just, like, give me that prequel movie. Like, this dude is the coolest fucking motherfucker in Demon Slayer. I just also I that, loved it so much. That bit of animation about, uh, is it Muichiro's dad or is it, how maybe I'm getting them back mixed up. Genya and Muichiro both have stories about siblings. Uh, I'm getting this mixed up. Uh, I'm thinking of Genya's backstory where his dad goes out to get the, like, special plants, right, to save the mom. No, that, no, that, that is Muichiro's dad. Okay, yes, yes. I mean, they mixed up because they're both stories about parents and siblings, and that will be important later on, because just so you know, Genya and Muichiro will have interactions in the future, and yes. their backstories do matter to that. Anyway, uh, I don't think, I don't feel like that's really a spoiler, no. just you've yes. set this up very clearly as a parallel. Uh, but no, that little piece of animation of him like going out on the ledge where he dies and all of that is like one of the most in- intricate pieces of animation this season. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible. for whatever reason... And- they put so much effort into all the stuff with Tokido's dad and got like a, a UFO table classic voice actor here, the voice of Miyashiro himself, uh, to play the most bit fucking character imaginable. Um, it's I just found it incredibly funny, but now I do need. I just want the flashback movie that is where you find out Tokido's dad, who presumably is himself related to the first swordsman, right? If Michiro is, yes. and it seems like Michiro's dad has the red eyes and all that shit. He looks kind of like the first swordsman. I want to see an anime where we learn, oh, like he knew Tantra's dad. Let's just have the hot Kimetsu dad anime with the two coolest dads in anime just like teaming up and they were like a buddy cops or something um, 30 years ago. Um, that's like the, the untold story you never needed, you knew you needed in Kimetsu no Yaiba. Be pretty good. Also, I'm learning, or I had forgotten this, that Tanjiro's dad is just named Tanjudo. Tanjudo yes, right. 
was the father of Tanjiro. I like the naming conventions in this family. That's very funny. Yeah. Uh, one other thing with this season I wanted to mention, Sean. I really like they they added a scene that is not in the manga to end the season where you have Tanjiro leaving Swordsmith Village in the wagon and everyone is mm-hmm. out there kind of uh, wishing him goodbye. They also this is where they play the theme song again, same as they did in season two where they end on the theme song. That's just a really nice sweet ending. In the in the manga, this kicks in very like seamlessly into the next thing that happens, and so there is no kind of like little denouement moment like that but of course this is the end of a season of tv and we might not see more for a while so i think this was a very smart way to end the season yeah it's yeah it's a good little moment i do like that they're like there's something that doesn't make any sense about them being so like oh let's put on the the, you know the eye mask and the the earplugs and all that shit and let's rebuild and also they're all rebuilding their villages like why you do you do know the demons know where you guys live now right like you probably want to get the fuck out of dodge uh, I, I find it amusing that you know, and obviously the thing is, then they take it off and they're like, "Oh, let's you can see all your friends here." Um, but I do I hope think, that all the swordsmith people just leave because I wouldn't I stay there. Th- I think in the manga they leave. I think in the I manga the, yeah. the narrator is like they're going to take Swordsmith Village and move it to be safe. But I understand why they didn't bother with that detail here. It's you know, you don't need yeah. all of the exposition. So, Sean, uh, maybe we can let the people go who are anime-only watchers. Uh, We are going to speculate about the future of the Kimetsu no Yaiba anime, which means we might bring in some spoilers from future manga stuff. So if you are anime-only, you might want to duck out here. Uh, Thank you for listening. But, Sean, they have announced Mm -hmm. that they had a little teaser at the end of Season 3 that the next thing they are doing is the Hashira training arc, which is the next piece of the manga. Now, that part of the manga is only nine chapters long, which at Ufo Table's normal pace, which has been remarkably consistent across all Mm -hmm. of Kimetsu, would be about four or five episodes. So not a full or even half season of anime. After that is the Infinity Castle arc, which is 47 chapters. And then you have Sunrise Countdown to end the series, which is 22. And Infinity Castle and Sunrise Countdown, it's kind of hard to see those separated. So you have this big, like, 70-chapter thing with this little nine-chapter thing in the middle. What do you think the plan is here? Yeah, I'm I'm curious. Yeah, because it's it is interesting that they call it specifically as like the Hashira training arc. When I saw that announcement, I was like, "Is that an arc?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I mean, I read the manga. I mean, I remember that. Yeah, there's a little training thing, but I mean, it gets into the Infinity Castle stuff pretty quickly. Yeah, I wonder if their plan is to sort of take it like they call it the Hashira training arc, but if it will go into the first sections of the Infinity Castle thing. Um, and that will be a season. I mean, because they are now fully at the part where it is kind of, you can't just fit the show into a clean season structure. Like you can't do a one core or even a two core thing and just finish it off or have a very clear ending point that's very like nice and easy. Um, Because at this point now, you have the little training arc, which is there to kind of train a little bit, but also sets up all the like elements that are going to come into play for the big final arc. And the big final arc is mostly three different big fight sequences that are all kind of interlocked and air cut together. Um, and then leading into the big final confrontation with Kibitsuzi Muzan in the end of the series. Um, and that like, I feel like the interconnected nature of those three fights makes it hard to envision how, like, how would you break that up to stop a season of TV in a very elegant spot is, I think, a hard question. So I think the, the you're, of course, left with the option of they could do they could pull a Heaven's Feel, which would be awesome, and just say, we're just going to do movies and try to package it up that way, um, where, like, you still have the issue of where do you start and stop individual films. But I think that that would, like, be a little bit easier than 
let's do a year on this like TV show season. Then we're only halfway through. Then you have to take a year break or something to work on the next season. Um, I think there's something about doing movies that maybe would feel a little bit more elegant. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of ways that they could approach it. I think they're doing movies. I think when I saw that they were like, the next thing is a TV adaptation of Hashira Training. I'm like, oh, okay. That's that's their little five episode like appetizer to the massive Infinity Castle film trilogy. Which, if you do the math... Mugen Train adapted 16 chapters, and if you multiply that by three, it's the number of chapters in Infinity Castle, so it could fit. Uh, also, just when I saw the Infinity Castle stuff on the big screen in episode one of this season, it just felt to me like, I, I don't know how you do it on TV. I really don't. Like, it, it makes more sense to me the shape of it in movies, mm-hmm. and also just the scope of it. Also... There is some violence coming up that even with what they've done so far might uh-huh. be pushing it on TV. I don't know. I, I think they might be going the Heaven's Feel route. And if they do, they're going to make a just ungodly amount of money <laughs> is what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. I think that like my gut says that I'm with you that I think they probably will do that. And I also think that that would be the best choice because um, obviously you have like Mugen Train like proves on its own that, that it's like a smart choice. Um, yes. And then... And then they also did this weird compilation movie that also made a lot of money. Um, that is like whether you could even call what they did with the Swordsmith Village a movie or not. I think it's a, it's a legitimate question. Right. But it, they put it out in theaters and it made a lot of money for them. So yeah, obviously I think it would like financially be fully justified for them to just move into doing it as a movie. I think it would be easier for them to chunk it up and break the story up that way rather than doing a TV show. Because I think if the TV version would just run into an exaggerated version of the problems that Swordsmith Village are cat, which is just like, it's a lot harder to chunk up into episodes. It's easier to chunk up into smaller bite pieces, which is the chapters of the manga. Or if you're doing big chunks where it's like, here's one huge chunk of the story and we can build an arc around that and find a nice like beginning, middle and end for each of those big chunks. I think that's a lot easier than having to do that throughout a whole season. And that's what kind of created a little bit of an aimlessness in the midpoints of this season three that I think could be a bigger issue if they tried to do it as a TV show. Yeah, I agree. I think I have a question of how they do the final part, the Sunrise Countdown thing, whether that goes back to TV or is part of the movie series or or how exactly you do that. But I do think like it feels like the right shape because it's just... It, yeah, you're right. The, the 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 rest of this series does not fit into single core seasons. Yeah. And so it is a tough thing to imagine. I trust them and their instincts either way they're going to go. And they have the latitude at this point to do pretty much whatever they want to do with this. But either way, God, I am... It just, it just goes up from here, guys. If you haven't read the manga, there's so much good stuff. Yeah. 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 And it is something where, like, just made me think about, like, the one core seasons and stuff. Remind me of uh, when they do the big Nezuko flashback. It is like really shocking seeing season one Kimetsu no Yaiba animation next to stuff from Mugen Train and Entertainment District Dark in this arc. Where it's like, obviously season one of Kimetsu no Yaiba looks fucking great. But it was a two-core season. And it was also before Mugen Train was the biggest thing in the fucking world. Um, and so it's a, it looks very good compared to other TV anime. But it doesn't look that good, at least in like in this part of it is like, you know, they didn't necessarily pick the juiciest pieces 
of animation from season one because those would be more involving Tanjiro. So they're picking Nezuko cuts, which aren't always the best ones. But it is like very funny seeing that directly contrasted with how like kind of luxurious the animation looks in the last two seasons of the show. And I think like I just don't think you could do a two core season and have it look this good. Like it would, it would you'd have to have too many cutbacks. Um, and I think like Kimetsu no Yaiba now has this reputation. Um, it needs to uphold for itself of this incredibly high bar they have set since Mugen Train for animation. Or like really since episode 19 of the season one. But they've kept on sort of like overcoming that hurdle, which each subsequent thing, um, even though one of them was a movie and they still overcame that hurdle when they started making TV shows again. But that's because they're one core season. So, um, yeah, I think that's also one of the reasons why movies would make more sense because they're not going to do a 26 season episode of anime. Like it's just not, I think, feasible. There's too much action the bar they've set for themselves is too high i just have no idea how you do that so movies would make the most sense because doing a bunch of one core seasons it would just take forever for those to come out it would and i think people would get i am rightly frustrated i think with some Mm -hmm. of how it is paced because it's just it doesn't have that shape but i think it could have the shape of a great movie trilogy we've seen them do it before uh boy howdy i I, i'm just excited for whatever it goes with because this show continues to be epochally great i love it um any final thoughts before we wrap up this year's episode of weekly yaiba kimetsu yeah you know it's i i wish you know the show came out at a higher pace we could have an episode next week and, and live up for one time to the name of this podcast but unfortunately that just doesn't seem to be the case but yeah i love kimetsu yaiba it's just an all-time great anime whether you know you're looking at it from the youtube table end of it or from the shonen jump like battle side of it like it is just such a incredible fusion of these two sides of anime stuff that I love that never came together. Um, and so I just love to see that it's still so good. It's still trucking along. You're right. It's still like the same team, right? It's still the same um, director, Haruo Sotozaki, who's done all of it. And it's like good to see like the consistency Yufa Table has brought to this series because it's just something that a lot of these kinds of shows um, don't always get because they are very long in the tooth. They take a long time to come out and to make in the very hard and I just love that Kimetsu no Yaiba so far is just like totally spotless um, in how it's been adapted and come out over here. Station.